Sawyer. Put the book down. It's not a book, it's a manuscript. I'm about to be the first and only guy to find out who done it. I think I got it figured out. So cool your damn jets and walk around the coconut trees. I got like 10 pages left. Hey! But we have to go back down the hatch. It's the Lost Rewatch podcast here on Post Show Recaps Book Club. Time to read. Bust out those books. Don't worry. You don't really have to read, obviously. If I'm not reading, you don't have to read. But you can if you want to. And if you don't want to, that's fine. You can just listen to this podcast because there's a lot of stuff about books and words and ARGs. Do you know what an ARG is? Hopefully you do. Hopefully you know who I am. I'm Josh Wiggler. I'm typically joined here on Lost Down the Hatch by Mike Bloom. I'm not today. Mike Bloom is in the middle of a move. And as such, we are in a little bit of a in-between stage between seasons two and season three. This is the final season two podcast of Down the Hatch before we launch into season three with our coverage of A Tale of Two Cities, the season three premiere next week. You still have plenty of time to get feedback in for that, down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. You can tweet at me, at Round Howard. You can tweet at Mike, at a Mike Bloom type, or you can tweet at postshowrecaps at postshowrecaps.com. Today, what we're going to get into, it's another round of the Lost Book Club. We do this once per season, where I'm joined by the great Jonathan Krauss uh, to talk about all sorts of literary references that are littered throughout a season of Lost. We did it for season one. It was super, super fun, so we knew we wanted to do it again here for season two, and the timing was perfect. Uh, we needed something to, to fill in the gap this week while Mike was in the middle of a move. So that's the podcast you're going to listen to today, and I think you're going to have a really fun time listening to it. Uh, I guess spoilers for a bunch of books. You know, If you haven't read uh, some of these books that were uh, referenced in season two of Lost, you may want to read them before you listen to this, or if you don't plan on reading them, then that's fine. Major spoilers for Bad Twin, uh, the tie-in Lost book uh, from Season 2. So if Bad Twin was on your reading list, you definitely want to get through that first before you listen to this. And then also, if you had um, uh, participated in the Lost ARG, the alternate reality game that happened uh, in between seasons two and three, or if you'd heard loosely about it but didn't really know what was going on with that, we're going to get into that in really big detail here on this week's podcast. So a super fun time headed your way. Before we start, I want to take a quick second to thank our sponsors for this episode. Support for today's episode comes from Progressive Insurance. Fun fact, Progressive customers qualify for an average of six discounts when they sign up for progressive auto insurance. Discounts for things like enrolling in automatic payments, insuring more than one car, going paperless, and of course, being a safe driver. Plus, customers who bundle their auto with home or add renter's insurance save an average of 12% on their auto. There's so many ways to save when you switch. And once you're a customer with Progressive, you get unmatched claim service with 24-7 support online or by phone. It's no wonder why more than 20 million drivers trust Progressive and why they've recently climbed 
to the third largest auto insurer in the country. So get a quote online at Progressive.com in as little as five minutes and see how much you could be saving. Auto insurance from Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Home and renter's insurance not available in all states. Provided and serviced by affiliated and third-party insurers. Discounts vary and are not available in all states and situations. All right, with all of that said, let's get into it. It is the second edition of the Lost Book Club here on Post Show Recaps on Down the Hatch. There is uh there's there's a lot of uh of shaming of watership down towards me that must be done. I am here to weather it. Uh I am here to weather it with my good friend returning to the podcast, John Krause. John, just lay it on me, man. How how badly have I disappointed you? Well, Josh, uh, t- to some extent, quite a bit. We are now one entire season of past Watership Down. They will never re- reference Watership Down again on the and show. Like they haven't read. I've I've crushed uh, five Stephen King books in the last few uh, weeks. Um, that's so I mean that's pretty good. And and we will talk about how Stephen King continues to influence the show. So that's a, a form of homework. And I will say to another extent. Let's move on. There are bigger things in the world than Watership Down. And uh, while I will say a fun little bunny adventure might be a good escape uh, in the hellscape that we're all living in, uh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. We, we've got bigger fish to fry. I'm getting my bunny adventures in Animal Crossing. Animal Crossing is where my bunny adventures are taking place right now. My Animal Crossing Island, by the way, is a sequel to Lost. I don't know how many times I've said that on podcasts, but I'm trying to just like really get that out there, that I've made a sequel to Lost, and it's my Animal Crossing Island, and it is my happy place right now. That's so incredibly awesome, and it's something that almost makes me want to check out Animal Crossing. Well, like, I kind of want to look at it. I'm thinking about doing a Twitch stream at some point so everyone can see uh, the, the the Lost Two Island because it's pretty good. It's pretty pretty good. Hey, hey, John, I I, I noticed uh, you're standing in front of this curtain. Uh, what do you what do you got behind there? Well, behind this curtain, actually, I have a special guest that I would like to introduce, and I believe that he is a mutual friend of ours. Ooh. So I'm going to I'm pulling well, should I meet you, him. If I meet him, then should I be prepared, prepared to die afterwards? Well, well, we'll get to that when we get there. So I'm pulling the curtain back. You can hear sort of the sound effects and uh, I don't know why I have a creepy curtain. There's a little oil. You need a little bit of like WD-40 <laughs> oh, on there. But anyway, here he, here he is. Oh, my gosh. The man behind the curtain, our mutual friend. It's Ben. Oh, my God. Is that the Ben behind the curtain? Kia ora, Josh. Kia ora, John. It is the Ben behind the curtain. Wow. And, uh, I'm so happy to be here. I uh, thought for a really long time about how exactly could I convince Josh to let me on the podcast. And it took me, uh, how long have we been doing this? A year about to a finally year. figure not, out. Not quite a full year. And uh, don't do yourself a disservice here, Ben, as though this is the first time your voice and my voice have crossed paths on a podcast, uh, lest we well, forget the Lindelof, lest we forget uh, your mole wand off that appeared on the mole podcast yeah. over at Reality TV Rehap Ups this week. Um, but for all of the correspondence that you and I have done over not just the last year of Down the Hatch, but the half year leading up to Down the Hatch, uh, this is the first time you and I have ever been on the line together. That's right. That's right. And so I'm pleased to know that the line, so I hear you like Japan, did the trick. 
<laughs> it really did work. It works. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta get Wiggler with a hook. I've been like, I have been essentially harassing Wiggler for a few years now, mm-hmm. and every month or so, I I try to beg him to let me talk to him on the air. And it, there's always got to be a hook. Yeah, it's for for me. the The tricky thing is like, I don't ever want to let anybody down. Uh, you can thank my mother for that one. Uh, we are people pleasers in our in our DNA. And uh, often I will uh, I will get a lot of messages and then I I become overwhelmingly overwhelmed by messages that I become very bad at responding to them. And it's not a personal slight at all. It is literally just like, oh, gosh, there's so many messages. I don't know what to do. Basically, what I'm saying is I'm very popular and you both should feel really cool for being on a podcast with me right now. Oh, of course we do. And also uh, very cool, mostly cool to be on a podcast with John, to be honest. Yeah, no, that's really the ticket. It's a, it's a rare day when you can get me <laughs> out of my bunker, which is where I'm currently uh, hiding in <laughs> well, Central Florida, USA. To that uh, point, keep yeah. My head out. Before we, before we started podcasting, we were talking about uh, where we all are uh, physically, mentally, emotionally. Uh, and yeah, John and, and Ben, you, you both could not be in, in more opposite situations right now. Ben's in Florida. Uh, John's in Florida, rather. Ben is in New Zealand. Um, so Wait, Ben's in New Zealand. I had uh, how, <laughs> there was no way to know. Yeah, it's not like Ben's just like been like standing on a perch, just shaking his arms in like old school celebration. Um, we see you, Ben. <laughs> I, I, I do do that. Yeah. Just a little bit of a, a little, uh, little braggadocious, you New Zealanders. It's so hard not to be, to be honest. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm really pumped for this. I, I've been looking forward to the season two book club for a while. Uh, John, I love podcasting with you. Uh, and the last podcast we did was, was so, so, so great. Um, Ben, I'm really pumped to finally be crossing paths in like an active real time situation like this. Uh, as I have said before, but I'll, I'll say it again. For, for those who are newer to the podcast or those who just don't remember the Down the Hatch origin story, none of us are here if it's not for Ben Martell. Uh, this podcast does not exist if not for the fact that uh, I started doing my Lost rewatch in the end of 2018, beginning of 2019, just to get past uh, some personal grief. And I was live tweeting it. And Ben, you were the one who slid into my DMs and said, anything that I have to do to make you podcast about this show... I will do. And I took you at your word. And here we are getting very close to a full year on from launching down the hatch. Uh, so if, if it wasn't for you uh, putting that out there, and if it wasn't for, for you putting all the work into... Uh, and I don't know, may, maybe someday we will unlock the keys to the documents. Uh, people may not know <laughs> just how ridiculously fleshed out the documents are and the documentation is on down the hatch to make sure that the podcast makes some... Uh, semblance of sense. Um, so much of that uh, falls on your shoulders, Ben. So uh, it's it's really really fun to have you here on this one. I mean, it's just so much fun to do, and um, I'm really glad I made this happen because I get to enjoy the product of it just like everyone else. It's just so much fun. All right. Well, let's talk books. Uh, my favorite topic is uh, literature and how much I enjoy reading. Uh, <laughs> so, John, I feel like uh, I, I feel like you're the leader here. I, I want to follow you. You're the you're the you're the you're the king of the of the island as far as I'm concerned when it comes to the book club. So, what do you have in store for us? 
Well, I just want you guys to know that I'm I'm one of the good guys. And so I will be leading you on this journey today. This will be very similar to the last one. If you didn't listen to the season one book club, what we did was we broke down the books featured on the show and the connections that they have to the narrative of the show. And we went sort of from most obvious, which we had a big feature of Watership Down, one more shade to Wiggler. And then we moved down to the less obvious or more subtle, maybe even tenuous Connections. I think we ended on unnamed automotive magazine. I from- believe that's correct. Yeah. So this season we're going to do it very similar, but we, we have missed, this. We missed the uh, the Green Lantern comic book, right? Yes, we didn't. Uh, which yeah. and this is maybe my uh, fancy book learning coming through, but I didn't think of that as a book. So shame wow. on me. Wow. Shade towards the whole comic book industry from John Krause. Well, no, I, I'm actually a fan of, you know, graphic novels. Like when I was uh, in college, I There's read a no lot. Distinction. It's a comic book. Any, anyone who's like, I make graphic novels and doesn't say that they make comic books as a former comic book journalist. I think uh, just own it. It's a comic book. Oh, definitely. I, I'm not actually standing on higher ground here. I, uh, I'm just saying that when I was introduced to the world of comics, it was through like going to Barnes and Noble and going to the graphic novel section as opposed to going to my, my local comic book store. It's good branding. It's good branding. You want a graphic yeah. novel, you feel a little, a little smarter, feel a little better about yourself for reading Watchmen, even though Watchmen has giant squids and, uh, weird, superpowered, naked blue people. Uh, go for it. It's high literature. Honestly, it's the binding, right? Because like a, a comic book is kind of loosey goosey. It's a little bit like a newspaper, whereas something that is is billed as a graphic novel has like a hard binding. You can hold it. Ben, are you a comics guy at all? I've never been a comics guy, and it's remarkably freeing because I love like the MCU, the yeah. Arrowverse, but I'm just not bound by all of the history. And you're I'm a huge by Agent of Shield guy, aren't you? I love Agents of Shield. Like. Uh, if, if Lost's number one, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. comes in, maybe four or five all-time TV Whoa, shows. So really? I, I think it has a lot of DNA in common with Lost. Um, I'll talk once to you get past about, the first about, couple of... Uh, putting Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on the, the list of uh, backup Lost shows once we're done in 2022. Yeah. You can tie it in a little bit with your MCU rewatch podcast. Yeah, but Kevin Mahideo is never going to watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I don't blame him. He, <laughs> he just won't do it. He refuses outright. So I'm I'm just going to step in here a little bit as the moderator and say we're going to we've already gotten off track. Yeah, I was introducing back, the concept back. of the episode. Uh, so the idea is we're going to go from big books to little books, but we're doing a special feature today on Bad Twin because Bad <laughs> Twin is the first and only time that uh, a book was created for the show. And it's sort of like a spinoff book. And I bit the bullet and I actually read the entire darn thing. Um, and then one of the excellent reasons we have been here is that we're going to tie Bad Twin in with the ARG. Between Lost Season 2 and 3, there was something called an ARG or an alternate reality game, which were really big in the early 2000s. And um, it's one of the most intricate, uh, mind-numbing, insane things. And so we needed like extra esoteric knowledge back up. And so that's why we brought in the big guns. Um, so we're going to kind of go through that before we dive into the rest of the books. Awesome. No, that's great. Let's let's do those up front and then uh and then hit everything else that we can on on the way down. And and my question for both of you as we're as we're going into this is like there were certainly like literary references all throughout the first season of the show. The second season, as we've covered on the podcast, and I know that, you know, both of you from just like our emails and stuff have, have absolutely agree that like 
Lockdown is that episode where everybody studies the Blastor map. Uh, once the orientation video is out there in the world, that's the episode that people are rewinding and we have to watch that again. Um, this is a season that I think is studied at a closer level than the first season of the show for sure. Do you feel like that extends to the literary stuff? Like to the extent of uh, like the Dostoevsky stuff are people like really at this point in the lost fandom, Ben, trying to to take a take a hammer to that stuff of like what is the significance of Henry Gale saying I'd rather be reading Stephen King right now that's exactly my memory of it and I think of things like the third policeman you know just I remember the analysis of every book that was in the hatch being uh, a big thing at the time and uh, I don't think it ever gets that big again it made me go, I wonder if uh, Damon and Carlton regretted how many books they threw in there or if they really expected people to go that far down the rabbit hole. So it'll be interesting to see when we get down to uh, to the lesser books just how much John can draw a connection between the books and the show for me because um, Damon and Carlton, I think, you know, they just threw everything in there and said they've all got a meaning. And do they all have a meaning? I'm really interested to find out. Well, yeah, if you think about it, like, you know, the, the way that season one aired, by the time we get to the back half of season one, there's a little bit of feedback coming in in terms of how fans are engaging with the show and how the show is becoming a phenomenon. But season two is like the first time that they break ground on a, a whole new story arc when they know how fans engage with the show and, and what that looks like, you know, after DVD sales come out and people are like looking for Easter eggs in the DVDs and all the message boards and stuff. And so I think you can really tell right from the beginning the flavor of like, oh, let's give them more meat to chew on, even if the connections are, are really tenuous. And uh, as sort of a convocation, you know, we like to look to the muses before we dive too deeply into this. And Ben, you pulled a couple of quotes from Damon and Carlton related to how they view the connection between the Lost Universe and the, the books that they put into the show. Um, so I'll, yeah. I'll read this first one and then I maybe have, I don't know, Ben or... or or Josh, I don't know how we want to do that. Read the, the second one. Rules. Do you have popcorn rules in New Zealand, Ben? No, but look, I'll have slang that you don't have as well. So yeah. tell me, what's a popcorn rule? John, John will finish reading and then he'll say popcorn Ben or popcorn Wiggler. And one of us will then uh, continue the reading. Uh, my, yeah, my girlfriend's an elementary school teacher and we've been doing distance learning down here in the hell swamp. And so I, I hear about popcorn a lot now. So yeah. I, I'm very familiar. Very tasty food, and it's a fun way to learn. And I'll tell you, John, um, I went hunting for quotes from Damon and Carlton that said, it's all a load of crap, you know, we weren't thinking about what books we put in there. I was really, I'm always looking for things that go against common wisdom, and I just couldn't find it. <laughs> well, they famously hold things pretty close to the chest. Like, only now are they starting to sort of break that that shield, which I know that some critics have lost, you know, they don't like that because they always, you know, acted like they knew exactly what was going on, uh, which maybe they didn't. And I would argue makes for a better show as you can adjust as you go. But anyway, um, so this is from Damon specifically. He said this in March of 20, 2009. Uh, in the LA Times, he says, we pick the books with a great deal of meticulous thought and specificity and talk about what the thematic implications of picking a certain book are, why we are using it in the scene and what we want the audience to deduce from that choice. Popcorn, Ben. And so Carlton, after Lost was over, had an interview with Esquire where he said, I think it would make you a fuller, richer person to digest all that literature. 
uh, he might be taking a dig at Josh. <laughs> it might give you some answers to your life, but I don't think it'll give you the answers to Lost. In the same way that music uses really interesting samples of other songs, I think there was a sampling. We wanted the show to reflect things that were meaningful to us. They were all part of the mosaic that made us who we are as storytellers. So we wanted to acknowledge them to the audience. I think that that is extraordinarily fair. I think that that is such fair play. Um, and, and whether or not there is this sort of thinking of like Damon and Carlton seeded so much throughout Lost as like a, we know how it ends. And if you read Watership Down and you read every word 5,000 times, you too shall know the ending of Lost. Like bust all of that myths and, and then put in like themes of survival. Uh, and, and what that meant to them when they read those books, uh, themes of, of love, you know, themes of connection, um, something that just has like, even if it's something that has a cool pop culture moment, that's going to be reflective of something that happens later on. Like, I don't know if there's a great example of, uh, you know, an empire strikes back. Well, yeah, there's some like it Hoff in, in season five in the same season where Montan loses his arm. Like, it's it's dropping things that matter to you as the artist that hopefully will resonate with the audience in whatever way that connects with them. The most important thing to me is, is this something that you're putting on the show because it resonated with you as an artist who is now creating art for us to, to enjoy? Um, I don't need it to explain the show. I just need it to matter to you. Uh, the artist. And if it matters to the artist, I think it's often going like, there's going to be like some sort of like emotional energy that's going to translate. Um, you know, I, I will drop in like bullshit random references to stuff all the time in a podcast, for example. And, you know, a good amount of that is going to fly over most people's head. But I think like you will believe that I believe the Final Fantasy comparison makes a lot of sense in the given moment. And hopefully that translates, if not in terms of the reference, then at least energetically. And I think a lot of artists do that kind of thing. I think uh, what Carlton says about how music uh, uses samples of other songs, um, like that, like you don't know necessarily the history of the, of the song sample. You might not know that this is from like some prolific musician from the 1950s that is being um, pulled into uh, a, a new song in the 2000s. Um, but if you go in, if you dig in deeper, like you will have a reaction to that. You may sense what kind of reaction the author had to that at the time. Um, I think all of that is total fair play. And I do think that that makes the fabric of Lost richer in the sense of they are putting so much of themselves into it. That that is, I think, what for me as somebody who uh, who loves this show so much and feels so personally connected to the show, I think a big part of why the show resonates with me is because I can sense, without having done all of the homework, but I can sense how much this means and how personal it is to Damon Carlton and the rest of the team. I think to another extent too, it it makes your brain vibrate. Like when you make the connection, whether it was intended by the author, whether it's really quote unquote there, like when you make a connection to another work, your brain feels good and you get a little dopamine hit and you're like, ah, this is really, really great. 
Um, and so let's completely change gears and talk about things that don't make my brain feel good. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about bad twins. Well, so, we got we to set it up just for yes. people who, who like I, I, there is a, the off chance that you are, you know, listening to, uh, you know, however many episodes of Down the Hatch there have been. Um, not the least of which is you're now in like the second season two bonus podcast before we get into season three. It's the book club. You may, you, uh, the chances that you don't know what Bad Twin are, I feel like are fairly slim. But if you don't, Bad Twin, it's a, it's a fictional novel within the universe of Lost or a fictional, is it a fictional movie script or is it a fictional book within the, the, the universe of Lost? All right. So maybe Ben has a little more insight into behind the scenes, but essentially after season one comes out and there's, it's just a gigantic hit, ABC starts to have lots of meetings about like, you know, how can we cash in on this? What are some different multimedia angles that we can go at? And some executive somewhere was like, well, what if there is a book tie in? And then um, I'll defer to Ben to, if there's more to that story. But essentially, they come up with this idea. Oh, what if a character on the TV show finds a book and then we sell that as a real book? And and so they they come up with this cover story. And so we hear that Gary Troop is the author of this book and that he was on the plane. And you'll recall in two of the episodes of season two, there's one where Hurley finds this book and he's reading it near a fire and then later in season two Sawyer finds the same book and it's uh yeah he calls it a transcript but I think it's it's not a movie script it's supposed to be like an unpublished copy it's like the final manuscript of the book that he's reading got it Ben do you have any more story there that, no, that's exactly right. And I think uh, it ends up tying into the lost experience, but that wasn't part of the genesis of this. It was just the same as the jigsaws they put out and all of the merchandise. They uh, they had a hit on their hands. They wanted to monetize it, and a book sounded like a good idea. And I think it ended up being what it was because of the uh, the drive by Harvey to go off and also do the, the lost experience, and they had the idea of tying the two together. Right. So... Let's let's kind of dive into this a little bit. And I you have read this. You read you yeah. read you read Bad Twin. So I will say in full disclosure that I did some research and I was like, am I going to read the book of this or not? And I I couldn't. I, I you know I knew I had to put money down on this, and I was like, how can I minimize the amount of money I put down? And I, I found <laughs> I found an audiobook version that was cheaper. And uh, I'm a bit I, I like audiobooks. I'm a I prefer actual textbooks, but in this case, like I was like. It's cheaper to go the audiobook way and I can probably get through it quicker. So I listened to the audiobook version of Bad Twin, but I listened to it in its entirety. Yes. I, I love an audiobook. So I count audiobooks as reading for sure. That is, uh, I am likelier to, to listen to Watership Down than I am to read it. I think that actually is a viable option for me. Um, all right. So you listened to Bad Twin. You read Bad Twin with your ears. Yeah. What happens in All right, so please just interrupt me because what's going to happen is I'm no. going to kind of go through the main plot points. Ben, and I think that we have to mutually agree that uh John has to do this breathlessly. Okay. Well, I'm going to go through <laughs> yeah. sort of the big no, plot points. It's a very convoluted book. And then I have a second section in my notes here which are just sort of musings and connections to lost. I get the impression having gone through this that this was probably already written. And then I ABC tapped a publisher and a publisher picked up a manuscript and called the author. And they were like, hey, you know how we said no to this? We're going to say yes. If you make some edits to like 
character names and stuff. That's oh, the impression God. I get. So you think that the book already existed and they just lost it up? Yeah, because, and again, we're going to go through this, but there is only, all of the connections to Lost are, are either in character names or in like non sequitur type connections. <laughs> so that's my impression. Okay. So in the story of Lost, this is by a man named Gary Troop, which is an anagram for purgatory. And in reality, in the real world, it was written by... They're really by, not buying themselves any favors with this, Ben. Uh, they really... They were dangling the purgatory stuff in front of us the whole time. They can't be that mad if people walked away from that final, 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 final shot of Lost being like, I knew it! I don't know. Like, were they sending up purgatory the whole time? Like, it feels to me, all the way through season two, they're basically making it so obvious with all of the theories that this is purgatory. It seemed to me that they uh, they knew exactly what they were doing. It was a wink and a nod. But um, I, I really, this is like my biggest pet peeve in Lost Josh, is people who don't understand the finale. I don't know. I don't think people can walk away thinking it's purgatory. Yeah. When we get to season six, I'll make sure you know why. Well, God willing. God willing we get there. Um, if Gary Troop is in purgatory, is he just like perpetually inside like the purgatorial propellers of Oceanic 815? Is he doing better than that? What do you What do you hope for him, John, having read his work? <laughs> Well, so honestly, so here's the thing. This book is not that bad. Like in the pantheon of bad movies, I'm a big bad movie fan, right? It's not like The Room where it's so bad that it's, you know, essential reading. It's just kind of mediocre. And so it, I, I don't know if I can honestly recommend it. It's it's written like to be a hard-boiled detective novel. It's very pulpy, very schlocky. And so there's actually stuff to in, enjoy here if you like that kind of thing. But it's not over the top bad and it's not really incompetent. And so you know, you're kind of just left being like, well, I, I ride that. I listen to that. Um, but so the, the, in real life, the, the ghostwriter was a man named Lawrence Shames. I want to give him credit. And I think it's funny that his last name is Shames. <laughs> <laughs> so let's dive into the, the plot here. And I'm going to go just kind of down the line. Here's all the plot points. Here's all the twists. Here's all the major players. It's technically a mystery. Um, and just interrupt me as you go. And then we'll kind of, I'll really hammer no, home all the lost connections. I just want you to do it. I want to, I want right. I want to hear you do this breathlessly. Okay. So we start with, and it's told in the third person perspective. Again, it's, it's very like Maltese Falcon. If you've ever seen that movie, but yeah. not you know nearly as good. Um, but we have our main character. His name is Paul Artisan. And I have in my notes here that he's a gun haver. And he's a mildly sexist hitman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, he's like a private eye, but he gets hired to do at the beginning of the book. He gets hired to do an assassination, but then he doesn't do it because he he can't bring himself to kill someone. Um, he describes himself in the book. Well, as he's, a, a, he's a bad hitman. Yeah, basically. Uh, he's yeah. So he describes himself as a romantic. And he says in his brain, in the narrative, that that's why he's a private eye because he's a romantic and he wants to help people figure out their problems. I don't think you can trust someone who says I'm a romantic. Like I don't well, think you yeah. get to make that choice. He's kind of a, not a great person, but yeah. so he gets hired pretty early on by, you know, a new client and the, the first big like chapter ending bump, bump, bum is that uh, his new client introduces himself as Cliff Widmore. And you're supposed to go, Oh, that's the that's the name in Lost that I saw once. 
Uh, and is is Cliff Widmore the Canadian Charles Widmore? <laughs> I hope so. I yeah. was thinking, you know, Paul sounds like the kind of guy who'd be hanging out with Billy and Rodney yes. uh, in, in the Sideways universe. And I think Cliff Widmore would, would definitely be there shilling out his McCutcheon. Just make sure you're filing these notes to, to uh, the R-Phillies of the world. Uh, there you go. So, back into the RPG. so Cliff hires Paul Artisan to find his twin. He says, I have a twin brother. We're identical twins, and my twin has gone missing. His name is Xander Widmore with a Z. With a Z? Yeah. And uh, Cliff also says, we are mirror twins, meaning that we are identical in every way, but we are polar opposites. Um, and he gives a little bit of info and you basically learn Xander is sort of like a hippie and, and Cliff is sort of like a uptight business guy. And, um, basically Xander was last seen traveling the world. He wanted to go join a commune and, uh, he's kind of like a dropout or a burnout. And then as, as he starts to investigate, uh, Paul, he learns that, and this is kind of one of the red herrings, like he learns that Cliff's wife recently died. And that maybe Cliff's wife was having an affair with Xander. Uh, and Cliff's wife is named Shannon. Uh, and, this is, and this is one of those things where, you know, it's like, okay, I think that they just pick certain first names to match names of characters on the show. It's not the first or only time that this will come up in the book where it's like, oh, that's the first name of another first name from the show we're watching. Are there any similarities between uh, our Shannon and the bad twin Shannon other than the name? Well, so we learned that the Widmores are very wealthy and you, you kind of learned that Shannon was part of that same social circle, but she's not a very fleshed out character. She spends the entire book, you know, dead. So there's not a whole lot going on there. <laughs> okay. Um, and then basically this book is Paul going to different islands. He spends a lot of time on islands. And so like he starts out in New York City in Manhattan and they, they underline that that's an island. And then he goes to Pecanaquad Island, which I don't I don't honestly know if that's a real island, but it's supposed to be like Long Island, basically, in the book. OK. And that's he, he starts investigating like Xander's um, friends and connections. And he finds out that Xander uh, had a best friend who is kind of a drug addict and his drug addict friend was named Moth. Oh, that, that guy's the smoke monster. Yeah, that guy's definitely the smoke monster. I'm holding up Moth. And so we learn through Moth that uh, he was really close to the Widmores and he went to Shannon's funeral. And, and Moth is the one who thinks that maybe Xander is sleeping with Shannon. Um, and then after this, he goes to the Widmore Estates, which is in a very fancy neighborhood um, somewhere like on Long Island. And then this estate is so fancy and big that it has a name like it's a named house. And the name of the Widmore estate is Isla House, <laughs> like Island. <laughs> Isla House is an awful name for anything. Um, and so, again, like I, I think this I was a book that pocketing that for future use, though. I will shamelessly that rip that off of uh, from from Lawrence James. At some point down the line. This is why I think, like, he hit Control-F. He was like, oh, they'll publish my manuscript if I hit Control-F and, like, replace all, you know? As somebody who's working on a piece of fiction that involves islands, I am just going to steal Isla House. Let the record reflect (laughs) that this was the moment when that took place. There you go. In reality, Charles Woodmore's estate would be called something like Camelot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, McCutcheon Manor, you know, like, Isla House. Yeah, it's great. 
So that's the Isla Castle or Isla Manor. Uh, certainly not just a house. It's, yeah, 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 it's a very it's big a house, house, but it's just a house. So at this estate, you learn a little more of the hierarchy. So the current owner and uh, CEO of Widmore Corporation is Arthur Widmore. He's the one who lives in this house. He's the father of Xander and Cliff. Um, and he's currently married to a woman named Vivian. Um, it's neither of their first marriage. You learn kind of in passing that Vivian used to be married to someone in the mob. Um, and, and Paul is at the house asking Mr. and Mrs. Widmore, like, when did you last see Xander and all of these things? And they're really very friendly. They invite him to stay the night because they have dinner. They drink a lot of um, scotch. Like that's another connection that is a thing that happens in the show. The Widmores love their scotch. And um, while he spends the night, Vivian, former mob wife, current Arthur wife, um, tries to seduce Paul. And uh, this is a point where I should bring up, like, <laughs> everyone is described in this book very sexually. The men and the women, it's a very, I, honestly, this book could be coded as queer. Like, like Paul notices everything on everyone. He notices their, their all their body parts. And uh, all of the women are described very objectifyingly. Um, but so are the men. So uh, there's a quality. A romantic, John. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so at this point in the book, Paul starts to have this theory, which is that he thinks that Xander may have murdered Cliff and assumed his identity. So he so starts the thinking guy that he's working with is actually the guy he's looking for is what he thinks. Yes. And I'm going to jump to the end here and say that's a better ending than what we end up getting. That's actually the better. <laughs> um, so we get the first like death in the book. We learn that Moth was crushed by a boat. He was working on a boat in a marina and like the th the hoist broke and, and smushes Moth. That's tough. And yeah, uh, I, that's some foreshadowing, though. Right, Ben, uh, that the Charlie analog is going to die via uh maritime some accident. kind of maritime accident yeah yeah that's right although i again moth the smoke monster i think this is just his out he realizes the story's going nowhere yeah uh, get back to the island his cover his cover isn't working as the moth yeah. so he needs to he needs to cut bait and go it's not worth it but paul eventually gets another lead and so he goes to a different island he flies to key west uh, and he ends up finding a yoga instructor. He learns that Xander is really into yoga and he finds his former yoga instructor um, and he flirts with her and they kiss and they talk about how they want to sleep with each other, uh, but they don't end up doing it because Paul's a romantic. <laughs> not on the first date. No. Uh, yeah, He also doesn't sleep with Mrs. Whitmore. So at this point, he's not slept with anyone, but he wants to. And he's he sees saving what all the ladies are working with. Saving himself. So then he learns that Xander went to a different island, and so he needs to go to Cuba. Um, but he can't. This book is like 2005, right? So he can't legally go to Cuba as an American. So he hires like a smuggler um, sort of a fellow to take him on a boat to Cuba. And uh, this this person, this character is great. He's uh, He goes by the name Crunch. That's the character's name. And I realized when I was typing these notes out that, that, that he's a captain. So he's Captain Crunch. That's wow. the, that's the character in the book is Captain Crunch. Um, and he's got a lot of tattoos. Content. Yeah. yeah. Does he have any milk? <laughs> oh my God. You know what? I don't, I don't remember what he drinks. He's not around for very long, but we learn that he, uh, he, he has a lot of tattoos and he says the F bomb a lot. There's a lot of, 
cursing in this book, but it's only like certain characters. And Captain Crunch has a salty sailor mouth. Yeah. So he gets to Cuba, Paul does, and he gets like picked up by some scary mob types that are that are kind of racist stereotypes. And the, the person reading the audiobook also like puts on an accent that makes me uncomfortable. And the the mob type people in Cuba are like, oh, Xander sent you like, do you have the package? And and he's like, no, I don't. And so then they kick him out of Cuba and then uh, send him back to America. And then Crunch, you learn, also got murdered like off screen. So then we're almost we're almost there. This is like the halfway point. Uh, then Paul goes to California because when he gets back to America from Cuba, um, he, he learns that Xander called uh, Arthur and Vivian on the phone and said he was in California. And so uh, one of the more overt references to Lost is that um, Paul Artisan flies to California and then he lands in LAX and he's really hungry. And so he goes to Mr. Clucks for lunch. <laughs> I would love to, uh, did they ever do Ben do you know did they ever like do like um like the way that the breaking bad uh people have done like Poyos Hermanos pop-ups was there ever a Mr. Cluck's pop-up as far as you know I don't think so I have that to look at awesome. it That'd would be, be awesome. interesting if cuz they they used a Hawaiian chicken restaurant as Mr. Cluck's it would yeah. be interesting to know if they got to use that branding at all but yeah not that I know of that'd be great there are some food pop-ups that happen, which we'll discuss with the ARG, but yeah, no fried chicken. So after he has a very heavy meal of fried chicken, he goes to this hippie commune where Xander was last seen, and uh, he finds out it's a nudist colony. It's tough to to just like have just like loaded up on like a bucket of Mr. Cluck's fried chicken, and then you end up at a nudist colony, like... And they have know. a very firm policy. I They're may, like, I may you be have projecting. I may be projecting, but I would be really upset in that situation. I would it's be just a bad combo. Yeah, it's bad stuff. So Paul goes through this nudist colony, and he's nude, and he's asking everyone else about Xander, and they're all nude. And be, because he's a romantic, he doesn't sleep with any of them. But but he sees everything, and we, the readers, are just everything is described a lot. And then after this, he learns that uh, Xander went to Australia. And so Paul flies to another island. And on the long flight, he and he flies oceanic, obviously. Uh, he really hits it off with his seat companion. And uh, also we learned that the flight attendant is a real babe named Cindy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which we know from previous references. Cindy is, according to Gary Troop, his fiance, right? M maybe unrequited, but Babe Twin is actually dedicated to Cindy Chandler from Lost. Yeah, the beginning of Bid Tw Bad Twin opens up for Cindy. Let me ask a question, though. Sure. Have we... Have we ever confirmed, is it confirmed in the canon anywhere, that Gary and Cindy weren't engaged? No. I, there, I feel like there's a... There's we don't really know a ton about Cindy, do we, Ben? I mean, yeah. we know that she takes care of the kids and that she gets, you know, recruited into the others and stuff. But who knows? Like, there could be... There's so much that happens in the other 48 uh, days. She could have really... had a moment with Bernard where, like, yeah, well, my fiancé is missing, too. His name's Gary. Yeah. He was working on a book. It was dedicated to me. He's a romantic. 
Bernard is is talking about Rose all the time, and and Cindy is just never they just reciprocating have, they that at all. Forty eight minutes to tell us that story, and five of those forty eight minutes need to be dedicated to re editing old footage. So it's just a limited amount of screen time that they have to tell us Cindy's side of the story. Okay, I'll go with it. Uh, is this our official canon now? You know that it is always my goal to unify the Grand Canyon, uh, the Grand Canyon of Lost. I'm a big head cannon fan. Yeah. Back to bad twins. So Paul and his companion on the flight really hit it off. And when they land, she's like, uh, would you like to here, Ben, do your best Australian accent. I feel like you'll be closer to me. Oh, no. She's oh, like, no. oh, do you want to come back to my place? Go. You want to come back to my place? Yeah, it just sounds <laughs> just like that. Yeah. Uh, and so they do. And this is the first time in the book that Paul sleeps with someone. Uh, and it's described as wonderful. Um, and then after well, they do saving himself for so long. So it's got to yeah. be very uh, cathartic for both Paul and the, the reader slash listener. Exactly. And so after how did, they sleep- you, how did you feel personally as the as the audience in this? Book? Well, I, yeah, I, there was a lot of anticipation throughout the entire <laughs> book. And finally, there was a, a, a big release. Oh, geez. And so <laughs> after they sleep together and they're kind of basking in the glow of, you know, each other, um, his his woman friends who has a name, I feel terrible. I didn't write it down. Um, but she goes to like the bathroom. And he starts like looking through her purse uh, absentmindedly and he finds a gun and he's like, oh, no. And so you find out that um, his it was not a coincidence that these two met, um, that this woman is also a detective and that she was hired to tail him. And it's it's one of the bigger twists in the book. And you find out through her that the reason they hired Paul was they thought that he was not a good detective and that he was hired to fail to find Xander, but he was too good and he's getting too hot. And so they hired her to stop him, but he, he is so good at lovemaking that she has fallen in love with him and now wants to help him over the course of one, uh, uh, international flight and, uh, an evening. I mean, I guess like this is like before sunrise type of stuff. Yeah, it's, she's it's romantic. Yeah, and she's very romantic melodramatic. as well. <laughs> yeah, so and, who do we? It, it do, is it possible if we're going to headcanon this? Is this Anna Lucia? No, she has a. She's Australian, first of all, okay. and uh, she has a name. I, ben, maybe you can Google it really quickly. I feel I feel bad. I didn't write it down because uh, she's in the rest of the book, so I should have done that. Uh, but now Paul fi- feels like he's figured it all out because he it's realizes. Hard. Hard. Prue, yes, prudence. That's right. Because she goes like, "Oh, I'm not very prudent." Yeah. So is that an actual line? Yes. Yeah, prudence. It is. At one point in the story, says, "Well, I'm not very prudent." <laughs> yeah, but it's tongue in cheek. It's like she says, "I'm yeah, prudent." Yeah, I get but... that it's tongue in cheek, but that's terrible. Hey, talk to Lawrence James. That's t- Lawrence. Yeah. Larry. Um, but at this point, we're in like literally the final act. Paul feels like he knows what's the deal because he's realized that he that um, Arthur Widmore is is very old and that he's not long for this world and that um, he's going to have to leave his company to his his kids. Right. Um, and Paul realizes that Arthur is very, very into their Scottish heritage. And he talks a lot about it throughout the book. And um, Paul realizes that in like uh not colonial but um in like uh black age not black, dark ages in the dark ages like scotland was really big into this idea of primogeniture they talk about primogeniture the idea that the firstborn son gets everything and so paul 
thinks to ask and he calls Cliff and he says, who was born first between you and Xander? And um, he says, well, Xander's the older twin by eight minutes. And also they were born on either side of midnight. And so we learned that Xander was born on August 15th and that Cliff was born on August 16th. (laughs) Okay, so Cliff has fallen off a cliff in terms of his stake in the game. And so then he realizes like, oh, he thinks that the man who hired him, because again, he was hired for being a bad detective. He thinks Cliff wants to murder Xander so Xander can't get the family fortune. Um, And then they track down that uh, Xander was in Australia, but that he goes to an island off the coast of Australia called Lizard Island. And I looked this up. This is a real island. Um, and so Paul and Prue decide to go to Lizard Island, and they're both very horny still. They go to, like, a resort. Are either of you uh, great British Bake Off fans? Yes. Yeah, so the every time you talk about Paul and Prue being horny for each other and having a hard time. <laughs> oh, man, that's that's definitely a coincidence. I am having a, a difficult good time with this, so I liked it better when we didn't know her name. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good point. Wow. So they go to this resort on, on Lizard Island and they find Xander, but they don't reveal themselves to him. Um, and they find out that Xander is chartering a boat to um, go look at some even smaller islands off the coast of Lizard Island, which is off the coast of Australia. And they decide to tag along. They're like, oh, we're on holiday. You're on holiday. Let's go. And so they're chatting with Xander and Xander says he's looking for real estate. Like he wants to buy up some of these islands. Um, and while they're on this little boat trip, another boat appears and in what is kind of a mirror of the scene of um, later in the series of Lost, the people in the second boat try to murder our heroes in the first boat. There's like a little bit of that, oh, like no. uh, who was in the catamaran or the, is the, the is, this, or is this a theory at all out no. there that either of you know? Like, is there are there people who believe now. that the other outrigger? Was I don't think and Damon Drew. and Carlton ever read Bad Twin. <laughs> Let's be honest. So anyway, uh, Paul and Prue both pull out their guns and like murder. They, they shoot back and the, the other boat explodes. And then Xander's like, who are you people? You're not just on holiday. And they sort of spill the beans. They're like, okay, we've been looking for you. Your family wants you to come home. And Xander agrees to fly home. Um, they fly oceanic again. Um, during this flight, there's less flirting because there's this third wheel. Um, but they talk a lot about fate and purgatory. Uh, they have, there's a lot of philosophical discussions in this book that have nothing to do with the narrative, but are clearly just trying to be like lost esque. Um, as soon as they land in LAX, they get a phone call from Vivian, Mrs. Widmore, and they learn that, uh, Mr. Widmore is dead. And you're, you're led to believe that it's Arthur. Uh, but then they arrive back, uh, to the estate, to Isla House on Pecanaquad Island, and you learn that it's Cliff, the brother that was murdered, which then reveals that he was not the one behind the murders because he gets murdered. It's the final twist of the book. Both twins are dead. Dead twins. Yes. Well, Xander is still alive, right? Yeah. Um, and so they all go to the funeral, um, including Paul and Prue, and then a shooter shows up at the funeral. And is trying and tries to murder Xander. And uh, so this is kind of the, the conclusion. This is the very end of the book. And Paul and Prue, once again, they're packing at the funeral. And so they they shoot the shooter. And then this is here we go. Here's the denouement. Here's the entire. Here's what was really going on. So the shooter, we find out, is a mob hitman who was hired by Vivian's ex-husband. 
And what we learn is that Arthur was not going to do the primogeniture thing, that he was going to leave 50% of his estate to each son. However, Xander was not planning on becoming, you know, co-CEO. He was planning on liquidating his share of the company and using that money for ethical reasons. He wanted to set up an ethical pearl mining uh business in Australia, hiring um, native peoples and paying them fairly. And he also wanted to donate money to Cuban hospitals. We learned that the like really weird racist, scary Cubans at the beginning were actually hospital employees. And basically um, this would have, because Xander was going to shell out 50% of the company, it would have left Cliff not in control of the company because he wouldn't have he would not have a controlling share. And so Cliff was upset about that. But more importantly, Vivian was not going to get anything, even though she was Arthur's wife. And so she wanted to off both twins uh, in order to get all of the money. Wow. Aunt Viv. And that's the book. Secret bad guy at the end. So this sounds like this was uh, a very valuable use of your time. (laughs) <laughs> Again, it's, it's it's not like it's if you like schlock, if you like kind of hard boiled detective novels, it's it's not bad. What the twists. The, what's the run time? Okay, so what's the run time on the audiobook? And did you listen at single speed, double speed? Um, I listened at single speed. I wasn't able, and I don't know how to do this. Maybe that I should have done this, but I don't know how to load it into like a player to speed it up. It wasn't a podcast; it was like an audiobook. So I listened to it at single speed. It comes in a little over eight hours. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's like, I don't recommend it, but it's because it's not good enough to be like, a, oh, this is awesome. Right, um, but it's can, not terrible. If I terrible. can find it, I can put it on double speed and crush bad twin in four hours. It's, might it's, be, might be it's vaguely enjoyable and vaguely competent. Like it's, they kind of go over the top with some of the like, you know, sexist descriptions and stuff. Again, if you like schlock, it's not terrible. It's just mediocre. Ben, you've, you've never read this? No, I've I've never read this, and I don't. And, and you're that. You're, the, you're probably the biggest lost man I know, uh, and you never read Bad Twin. Does this make you want to read it more or less? Um, I think John has done all the work I need. <laughs> Pretty much, my biggest takeaway from this is that Xander Widmore shares a birthday with Down the Hatch, and yeah, uh, yeah I think that that's enough. I guess on uh, on August fifteenth, twenty twenty. Uh, we'll have to do. Uh, we'll maybe we'll live stream the the Xander Whitmore birthday party. Oh, that's uh, a great idea. I love yeah. that. That's, that's actually a good idea. Yeah. All right. So next up, I have these are just my musings. So these are basically connections to Lost that are overt that have nothing to do with the plot. They're just kind of thrown in there. Uh, ben, you already mentioned that the book opens with a dedication to Cindy. Um, this is something only for the audiobook version. But each chapter, you know, it's like chapter one chapter two but they're not like that they have their whispers so like instead of just saying chapter two it's like chapter 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 two chapter two is is this all of the dead people who tried to get through bad twin and now yeah. they're trapped inside the book <laughs> yeah and moth and captain crunch they're there too <laughs> and every on the numbers so chapter eight chapter 15 chapter 16 um in addition to those whispers someone just goes lost so that's fun there's a lot of quotes Uh, that's great so in the book paul has a a a friend um in new york city who is a jewish man and that's not really relevant to the plot but it it does play into like they talk about his his faith a lot 
Um, and he also has a dog and he like shares the dog with this, this friend of his because Paul travels so much. Um, is this a and thing? I don't you think, think this is a thing in real life. No, I don't think so. But, um, his friend is a philosophy professor. And so like, he's kind of the guiding light for Paul. So he calls his friend a lot and they talk about like the, the case. Um, but his friend always wants to go back to philosophy. He's like, you know, this is like that philosopher. Um, and at one point they act, he actually says that his favorite philosopher is John Locke. Yeah. Uh, who's a real philosopher. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, yeah, but so like they, you know, during a lot of these philosophical, philosophical conversations, they say things like space and time. They're warped by large objects. So like there's these discussions about how time is not a straight line and, and, and things about fate and things about purgatory. Uh, and a lot of book allusions, including books that we're about to mention. So like his, um, co-dog, dad uh a lot of his favorite books are books that happen to be featured in lost season two so that's kind of fun uh Even if they were roommates they would share a dog they they aren't i think they live maybe in the what same if, building what if they had been though yeah well i guess at that point then you would share the dog yeah. on a very technical level maybe maybe so uh, as we're learning about Widmore Corp, we learn that they have investments in a lot of, and this is a direct quote, arcane construction projects, strange scientific experiments. Um, and this is not a direct quote, but there are lots of mur uh, murmurs of offshore ventures. So that's like supposed to be, you know, an implication of the island. Um, there is talk about Hanzo Foundation and how Widmore Corp like owns a controlling interest in the Hanzo Foundation. Um, when he first goes to the Widmore Court building, Paul gets off the wrong elevator floor and he ends up in the Hanzo Foundation. Um, and like he, there's just a bunch of scientists bumbling around. But he notes that there are um, paintings on the wall of elephants chasing polar bears. And like Paul really thinks that's weird. So that's nice. Uh, we learned that Xander almost went to Korea to work for Pake Industries, but he decided not to go. There, there may be some some room on the field that there was an interest in uh, in tying Mr. Pake to the Whitmores. Yeah, but again, like I just have to wonder how. Like I don't think yeah, Damon who, and Carlton yeah, had sure. involvement in the yeah, book yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, this has nothing to do with Lost, but anytime there's a boat in the book, um, the narrator describes the boat as like very phallic. Like he uses the word phallic, and at one point he talks about like, what if boats had penises? That's and that's a thing that happens in the book. Well, um, <laughs> Moth talks about how he's like sexually attracted to boats. He doesn't say I want to marry a boat, but he says like he thinks boats are really sexy. Okay, you know, um, I don't really have a, a response to this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I ahead, wonder what Moth thinks about that after he gets crushed by a boat. I mean, was it <laughs> well, maybe that's what he wanted the whole time? <laughs> yeah, this this might have been. He got his wish. Um, just a couple more things here. So, like I said, the Widmores really like their whiskey. At one point, um, Arthur, the patriarch, he offers Paul his favorite whiskey, and he's like, he it's like behind a safe or whatever, and he says that this whiskey comes from the island of my ancestors. And he and he says that the name of the island is Isla, which is fun. Yeah. So is that canon now? Is the lost island called Isla? Well, I think that's kind of what the implication is supposed to be. But the whole thing with Mr. Widmore, Arthur Widmore, is that he is Scottish. And he talks about how his ancestors came from Scotland. And I don't think, I mean, I know the island, the capital T, capital I island can move. 
But I mean, was it ever near Scotland? I mean, maybe. Uh, it's hopped all over the world. So I got to imagine it's probably spent some time in Scotland. Okay, fair enough. Uh, at one point, Paul Artisan is described like his features, and it says that he has very dark features and very long eyelashes. Uh, um, Richard Alpert, which I feel like is a Richard Alpert yeah, reference, for sure, for sure. But I don't. I, I, he's clearly not Richard Alpert, so I don't <laughs> know what's going on there. Um, one time when he's in the Widmore Building, he's in a waiting room, and Paul talks about how um, there's lots of oceanic views. There's just lots of like wordplay there. Yeah. Um, at one point, Arthur Widmore is complaining about this new Thomas Middlework guy who's like the new head of the Hanzo Foundation. And um, that is uh, a connection to the ARG, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, and, and that's basically it. So there's lots of these overt sort of lost references that are ham-handed in here. I think the discussion that I want to have right now is what I think is the biggest sin of this book, which is that I don't know how this can fit into the show. In the story of Lost, Gary Troop is a person who wrote a fictional book. And yet he writes a fictional book about all of these things that have connections to the island that there's no way that he could know about. And then like, but then he also talks about how John Locke and Desmond Hume are all of these people. And it's, it, I don't know how it works in, in the actual universe of the book. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so, John, you know Gary Tripp's first book, right? Right. Yes. So, his, and that, that's a good transition. Book, his first book, yeah, is, is mentioned in the Lost ARG, and, and it's the Valenzetti equation, and Tripp himself calls it a nonfiction book. So, uh, if he's been researching the Valenzetti equation, I can see how he might be writing this fictional book called Bad Twin that he he really thinks is all of this real stuff that he's exposing. I think that fits with the troop character. So maybe it's supposed to be an expose. Okay, well then the other thing, uh, and maybe we're saying if that's the case that he's changing people's names, but you know, there's no reference to Charles Widmore and the hierarchy of the Widmore Corporation doesn't make any sense with what we end up seeing in the show. Yeah, I just think Gary Troop's an idiot. Oh, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> you solved it. Wow, great. He thinks it's an expose. Wait, is the Ben behind the curtain secretly Paul Artisan? Oh, maybe. Uh, yeah. I do He's have long letters. Uh, tell me what you feel about boats. Uh, no, that's Moth. That's, oh, that's yeah, Moth, moth is, the, is the boat guy. Yeah. I, I hate boats. <laughs> so that's Bad Twin. And uh, I think that... <laughs> Not to toot my own horn, but I think That's I did bad. enough. You don't need yeah. more. No, you did great. You did great, John. You suffered so the rest of us could uh, lavishly enjoy uh, the fruits of your labor. Uh, exactly. I'm so I'm so thrilled to to know what Bad Twin is all about. Uh, and not have to experience it myself. I much prefer your audio book, uh, the audio Cliff Whitmore notes. As ah, before. very good. Yeah. So yeah. this transitions really well into the ARGs. So for those of you who don't know, um, ARGs were a thing in the early 2000s. It was kind of like viral marketing. And it was before we could just pay people on Instagram to like talk about stuff. And so they, they would come up with these really elaborate like backstories. And one of the coolest things about ARGs and what I miss about them is that they would tie into real world stuff. So like the lost ARG in particular 
like creates a story in between season two and season three. And it used things like websites, um, podcasts, commercials, magazine ads. So like there were lots of real world, you know, brick and mortar concrete stuff that like helped to build this storyline. Um, and so we'll talk about that right now. Uh, yeah. what is your, what is your knowledge or experience with the ARG, Josh? Um, so I obviously was aware of it. Um, and as, as a big Lost fan at the time, when there would be big reveals like the, the Hanzo video at the end, like I was tracking it. But even then, as like a deep cut Lost fan, it felt really hokey. And, and I had this feeling of like, oh, so none of this is ultimately going to matter to the, to the show. Like, I couldn't tell you really what the Valenzetti equation is. I'm very grateful for the fact that this podcast is going to exist because you will, you will hammer it into my brain, uh, Ben and John. Um, but like, I, I have, I have, I have made basically no room in my heart for this stuff. Uh, and that's okay. I, I, you know, I, the, the show is the show for me. Um, and the headcanon stuff is super fun. And if you were so deep into loss that like you were aggressively following the ARG, all the better for you. Um, the more and more engaged in the show you were, uh, I think the, the, the better off. Um, but, but, but for me, this just was never really my thing. I had awareness of it. I can, I can congr, I, I can conjure up in my head. Uh, what, what's his face? Tom Middlework. Yeah. I can, I can see him. He has like yeah. a, like a, a tight ponytail kind of look, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, like and the like, idea of canon. Air, like I can, I can, like he seems like kind of brawny. Um, I always was unimpressed with the Alvar Hanzo casting. He just never seemed mysterious enough for me. Uh, yeah. So the whole thing felt like a B movie to to Lost A plus plus. Well, there's some disagreement even between the showrunners on whether any of this is considered canon or not. Ben, you pulled some nice little quotes here again. Um, Once upon a time, Damon said, "quote I would say in terms of the background that we did, the Valenzetti equation and the explaining of the formation of the Hanzo Foundation and doing the other." orientation films we consider that stuff canon where we have to have some wiggle room Ooh. is the rachel blake storyline and what she did in the real world and the outside world as we defined it uh and and that's basically it so he thinks some of it's canon um carlton later on said alvar hanzo and his relationship with the funding of the dharma initiative is part of the mythology the details of the hanzo foundation's demise is tangential to the show but it's not unrelated to the show we felt that the internet experience was a way for us to get out mythologies that we would never get to in the show uh, because this mythology, this mythology doesn't affect any of the characters' lives or experiences on the island. So the idea of it being That's non-essential is a lot of words true. to be like, yeah, we know it's bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I actually think, you know, my theory for what's going on here is we have Javier Grio Maxwatch. He's leaving the show he clearly is going in a different creative direction to Damon and Carlton. And I think this is really his baby. And um, and he has this vision for exactly what Dharma is that I don't know that Damon and Carlton were ever on board with. Um, so that that's my pet theory on exactly what's happened here. Yeah. Right. So Javier, he wrote the ARG in association with a man named Jordan Rosenberg, who went on to write a single episode of Lost Proper. He wrote Par Avion in okay. season three, uh, which actually has some some DNA with the with the ARG and the idea of uh, 
an unexpected reunion between father and daughter. Yeah, definitely. So clearly they're both passionate about it. This entire thing takes place over the course of the, the months, which I think it's like almost eight months in between the season two finale and the season three premiere. The game officially began after two for the road premiered, which, which was in May of 2006. And it premiered with a commercial. So during the broadcast of Lost on ABC, during one of the commercial breaks, and for those of you who are too young to remember network television, there's a lot of commercial breaks. Um, but there was this one very mysterious commercial that seems to, to really come out of nowhere that actually aired on television. And uh, I believe we have the audio for that commercial. Yeah, let's listen in. This is the first Hanzo Foundation commercial. Since the dawn of time, man has been curious, imagining all that is possible. The Hanzo Foundation, reaching out to a better tomorrow. Discover the experience for yourself. Call 1-877-H-A-N-S-O-R-G. O-R-G. Nice to really tack that on. So listen, Damon and Carlton cannot wash their hands of this completely, especially Carlton, because that's the dude's voice. Yeah, that's definitely Carlton. That's straight up Carlton Cuse. (laughs) Exactly. So that airs and there's a phone number you can call. And so if you called that number and unfortunately, a lot of this stuff is lost to time, quote unquote, lost to time. Um, We do have some more cool clips kind of queued up, but a lot of this you really can't find anymore. But if you called the phone number, you'd get like this mysterious recording. And uh, if you followed those clues, it would lead you to the Hanzo Foundation website. And that's sort of the beginning of this. Uh, ben, you wrote a lot of amazing notes on all of the clues and everything. Um, basically, this entire thing, which lasts almost eight months, is in five main stages. And we'll kind of break it down. Um, we can get into the nitty gritty as much as we want, or we can just sort of go over the main storyline. But there's a lot of Easter eggs throughout this entire thing that that don't really mean anything. So like on the Hanzo Foundation, there's a job openings page and they have four careers that like they're currently hiring for. And none of this really leads anywhere, um, but it's just fun, right? So there's um, they're hiring the personal assistant to Thomas Middlework. They're looking for an organ courier to be based in Iceland. So the, the organ courier is to be like, squirreling organs from place to place around the planet. Yeah. Like body parts. Sweet. Um, they're hiring a simian veterinarian. Um, and they're also looking for an anger management director <laughs> to live in Seoul, Korea. Wow. Josh, Josh hired it. Mr. Pig. <laughs> yeah. Josh, which of these jobs are you going to take? Um, I think the one that I am probably most qualified for uh, would be Simeon veterinarian. No, oh. not really. I don't think so. Uh, I think probably I would, I would only qualify to be a personal assistant to somebody. I think that like, I have a resume that might, uh, get me in to, to that world, but I honestly think I'll probably not get past the first round of interviews on any of these jobs. I, I could think- use an anger management director. His name yes. is Brian. He's my therapist. He's the best. Hashtag shout out Brian. Yes. So basically the storyline for stage one as you're diving through the Hanzo website is that the website gets hacked and you learn that this hacker calls herself Persephone and she believes that the Hanzo Foundation is up to a bunch of shady stuff and that they're not really very good or charitable. Uh, and over the course of stage one, you, you along with Persephone, learn that 
perhaps the Hanzo Foundation purposely released a virus outbreak in Tanzania? I believe that. I think, uh, you know, we're, we're, uh, in a time where, uh, we are, we're as conspiratorially minded as ever. Uh, yeah. but even here in, in the, the mid 2000s, um, I'm, I'm inclined to believe that the Hanzo Foundation would be up to such chicanery. I, I hey, I believe anything related to virus outbreaks now. Yeah. Uh, so we also learned that the Hanzo Foundation owns a orangutan called Jupe. That's who, right. I forgot about Jupe. Yeah. And Jupe is 106 years old. So we learned that the Hanzo Foundation has artificially extended his life mm-hmm. and that because um, apparently orangutans live to about 50. And like, so there's a connection like, oh, maybe they're making people immortal or, or maybe they're trying to six years older than than Jupe ought to be. Yes. Jupe's ready to go. And this is sort of an aside, not related to the ARG, but um, in 2007, on one of the official Lost podcasts, Damon and Carlton said that um, Jupe was their sort of uh, backdoor plan in case the show was ever abruptly canceled. They said if ABC decided to axe the show before they were ready, they would just film a final scene uh, of the show of a desk and a leather chair. And the leather chair would turn around and it would be Jupe, the orangutan, holding a pipe. And he would say, hello, I'm Jupe. I bet you're wondering who I am and what's going on. And then he would just read like the rest of the show notes to everybody. You know, what? I, I wonder if um, if Lost's ending had been received better and Damon and Carlton didn't go on to have, I think, like a relatively complicated relationship with the show in which like it, it is painful to look back uh, to, to a certain degree for, for Damon and Carlton. Is there a world in which it's not painful for them to look back? People get it. People like it. People love it. Uh, and that is the predominant opinion on the field uh, about the lost finale, where to mark the 10-year anniversary of the finale, Damon and Carlton have the energy and the wherewithal and the excitement to create this Jupe video. I would love to see it. I still think it's worth doing. I think like the 15-year anniversary of the finale would be, would be a great time to drop the jupe thing uh, as the as the one of the three of us who is likeliest to to find themselves in a conversation with Damon Lindelof or Carlton Cuse at some point down the line due to the nature of my job. I'm going to take this as my next uh, lost assignment. First, I had to try and find out who is DJ Dom. Now I'm going to see if they can't bring back jupe. Hashtag bring back jupe. justice for jupe. So as, as stage one wraps up, we also learn that Alvar Hanzo, the head of Hanzo, is missing. He hasn't been seen in two years. Um, and this is around when Bad Twin comes out. And so there was actually a Bad Twin like book website from like a publisher, like the publisher made a website. And there were lots of interviews with Gary Troop, um, who I believe is played by a different actor than than the Gary Troop that gets sucked into the airplane um on the show and then this ends up tying into the ARG because as Ben alluded to earlier in his interviews Gary Troop talks about his first book which was a non-fiction book called The Valenzetti Equation and unfortunately that's out of print and that's cuz they never they never really wrote it in real life um but this ties uh, up stage 1 when uh eventually through an HTML code on the Hanzo Foundation website you get to a new website of a man named DJ Dan okay and DJ uh, Dan has a conspiracy. That's too close. That's too close yeah. to our guy. I know. I, I wonder if he is owed some residuals. Um, but DJ Dan hosts I'll a tell podcast. You who I came with uh, my. This is my line. DJ this Dom versus DJ Dan for sure. I'm. I came with DJ Dan, but I'm leaving with DJ Dom. Yeah, for sure. 
for sure. So DJ Dan hosts a conspiracy podcast, and that's sort of what kicks off stage two. Um, and in the ARG, DJ Dan is actually played by Javi Rio Marks Watch. Wow. And that's our second sound clip. All right, let's pull that up. This is DJ Dan. Coming to you live from Area 51. DJ Dan. You're listening to DJ Dan. Shutting down the man. <laughs> Shutting down the Dan. Uh, and so that should we be more. So, should we do more shutting down the man on this podcast, Josh? Yeah, well, I think that that's all that we're trying to do uh, is to shut down the man who's saying that Lost sucks. Uh, tell that to the hundreds of hours of podcasting that we're doing about it. For over 10 years now, part of my morning routine after I wake up is I splash some water on my face. I brush my teeth. I look in the mirror to myself and I say, time to shut down the man. Time to shut down the man. So through, through the DJ what Dom, did DJ, what did DJ Dan have to do with anything? Is this is he like some like super crazy nut conspiracy theorist? Is like oh the Hanzo Foundation? They're not what they're cracked up to be. That's exactly it. He had <laughs> like eight, eight five minute podcasts where he was just spouting conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. and uh, some of them proved to be correct. A lot of the time, it was just phone calls from people who were. Um, like Henzo Foundation employees trying to shut him down or other conspiracy nuts. And uh, in the end, there's a way that it pays off when we get to stage five. But for the most part, it's it's just uh, a way for Javier to have a bit of fun. Yeah, well, again, there's a lot of like dead ends to all this, but um, the Hanzo Foundation gets shut down in real life. But if you visit what used to be that website and then look in the HTML code, there's a URL to a new website. And it looks like a very boring, very basic travel blog hosted by uh, a woman named Rachel Blake. But again, you dig deeper and you learn that Rachel Blake is Persephone, the hacker from stage one, and that she is trying to travel the world to like, you know, take down, shut down the man. And uh, she is basically trying to stop the Hanzo Foundation from doing all of its evil things. And that's yeah. kind of what stage two is about. Okay, so it's all about now. Now we've got a protagonist on the board. We have like a, a flesh and blood human being to root for here in the quest to out the Hanzo Foundation. Right. And so throughout the narrative of stage two, um, she eventually goes to Iceland. There's a Hanzo facility in a town called Vik. And just before she gets to, like, the bottom of everything, this is where the organ harvesting is happening. Um, there's a fire at the at the building, and Rachel believes that uh, that it was set intentionally by one of Thomas Middlework, who's, like, the CEO of Hanzo, um, like, one of his henchmen. And uh, that's, I think we have a third sound clip here of Rachel confronting Xander, not Xander Widmore, a different Yeah, I was going to say, uh, we gotta, we got to keep our Xanders. Straight. I might not be from the times. I might not be from the times. But if you walk out that door, the people knocking on your door tomorrow, they will be. I, I didn't know what I was getting into when I took this job. And what are you getting into? You... You read my letter. The third basement, Miss Blake. It's not full of mental patients. They are mathematicians, called from the world's finest, paid to come in undercover and work in secret. Only I'm sure some of them don't want to be there. I don't know. They work day and night on this equation. 
and then there's the savants. What about them? These are autistic savants, Miss Blake. Their computational powers are unsurpassed. They keep them in this room. It's comfortable. I've seen to that. First and foremost, I am a doctor. But all day they are running this equation over and over and over. What kind of equation is this? It's like nothing I've seen. There are these symbols. I asked one of the mathematicians and he said that they were representational. Representational of what? I've always thought they looked like Egyptian hieroglyphics. There are five, maybe six of them in there, and it's a vulture, a staff. You need to show me them. All right, so we're getting into uh, when when we're in the, the red zone with the numbers. We're bringing the hieroglyphics in. The ARG is trying to explain the Egyptian connection on Lost. And that's what basically, like, if there's a point to this entire ARG, it's to explain what the numbers mean, because the show never really attempts to do that. Um, so that clip goes on for quite a while. And essentially, we learn that there's a secret facility where Thomas Middlework has, like, a bunch of people who, and this is a direct quote, they're described as autistic savants. Um, and they're, they're like slaves, and they're being forced to run mathematical equations to try to solve the Valenzetti equation. But we don't know what that is yet. So these people are, are terrible. Uh, the, yep. the, the middle work era of the Hanzo Foundation is clearly they are, uh, they are, they're doing very bad things. And so this leads us into stage three. So San Diego well, Comic Con happens. Go ahead, right, Ben. Right, John, just before we get to stage three. So, uh, Rachel Blake ends up, uh, following middle work from Iceland after Sri Lanka. And this is where we get a a clear crossover to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I think we have to stop down on this. So she's assisted by somebody called W. Malik. And Josh, if you watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., you'll know Wilfred Malik is one of the founders of Hydra. Oh! Uh, and, and so, you know, clearly the Hanzo Foundation is connected to Hydra. Well, that's no good. Well, it makes a lot of sense that much in the way that Hydra infiltrated S.H.I.E.L.D. and corrupted this organization that was supposed to stand for truth, justice, and the American way. Sorry, no, that's a different comic book universe. Uh, that this is, this is what's happened to the Hanzo Foundation. Middlework is clearly Hydra. Yeah, I think that's, that's the answer to exactly what's going on here. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yes, that was, that was very important. Thank you for that. That's, I didn't even know that. That's really fun. Uh, so, so, so stage three starts at Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con 2006. There is a giant Lost panel, as happens throughout the run of Lost at, com- at Comic-Con. And this is the first real-life event that relates to the ARG. So during the Q&A session, when Damon and Carlton and some of the other writers are you know, being asked questions, like, who's your favorite character or whatever, um, a woman stands up to ask a question. And she starts screaming and like hurling accusations and says, like, how dare you? And this woman ends up getting escorted out of the building by security. And like, as she's being dragged out, she says that she is Rachel Blake. And then she shouts out a URL. Like, if you want to know the truth, you got to go to what is it? Stop Hanzo or find Hanzo. (laughs) Okay. Should we listen to the sound? Yeah, we Uh, actually have the recording. We have audio of this. Okay. So let's, let's listen to the audio of Rachel Blake at Comic-Con. I assume this is Hall H. For those who don't know Comic-Con very well, like most of these 
uh, big movie and TV show panels take place in this, uh, this hall called Hall H, and it's gigantic. And the atmosphere in there is almost always just like electric and huge. Uh, so for this to be going down, and like strange ass shit goes down at Comic Con. Uh, so what we're about to listen to, um, I I I think this is very in character with what you often get uh, at Comic Con. So let's uh, Comic Con is virtual this year anyway. So let's bring a little bit of a virtual flashback to Comic Con for the Down the Hatch listeners. This is Rachel Blake accosting Damon and Carlton at Comic Con. Don't be cute. <laughs> Tell us what you know about the Hanso Foundation. Uh, the Hanso Foundation is a uh, is a is a philanthropic organization that we have co-opted for the purposes of law. So we stuck it at the end of an orientation film because we thought it was. Those be films are real. We deserve the truth. No, no. We're not ridiculous. We're we're writers. You're liars. <laughs> You're promoting them as some sort of force for good, but they're not. Look, uh, you know, uh, um, Dan Brown uh, uses Opus Day and the Da Vinci Code. We oh my God! Okay, stop. Since you claim not to know, why don't I fill you in? How about the name Jew? 105 words right in his name. How about a fire in Iceland? Do you know anything? Do you know that organ harvesting in Africa? How about the deaths of Hugh McIntyre and Darla Tack from the Look, Global Healthcare uh, Consortium? There, there are other people waiting to ask questions. We have no connection. I'm sure that they want me to ask these questions. We have no connection with the Hanso Foundation. That's a lie. They run ads on your show. They're putting money in ABC's pockets to prove themselves as this great philanthropic organization. Maybelline runs ads on our shows, and we're not part of the International Makeup Global Consortium. Stop it. You're protecting them. You're protecting a very real, very dangerous organization. Look, it's not real. It's a television show. There is no Alvar Hanso. It is real. The Hanso Foundation is real. The Dharma Initiative is real. Thomas Werner Middleburg is real. And what he's doing in Sri Lanka right now, he's doing terrible things. That's real. Where is Oliver Hanso? He's an actor. He's in a window on our TV show. Oliver Hanso is real. And I am living proof of that. And my name is Rachel Blake, and I am real. And if you want the truth, you will go to HansoExposed.com. You have blood on your hands. You have blood on your hands. You have blood on your hands. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. And I'm pretty sure that like Daniel Day Kim is on stage, right? Josh Holloway is on stage. She's like pointing at them. You oh, hey, now if, if David and Carlton are like, we've got nothing to do with the Hanzo Foundation, or like we're really limitedly involved in the ARG, then I imagine Daniel Day Kim and Josh Holloway and everybody else on stage are like, I have no effing 
clue. No idea what's going on. <laughs> so I, I, that's such a fun clip. I love listening to it. You can tell that the audience, like most of them know what's going on. As soon as she, as soon as they see her face, like some of them know her from the ARG already. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They know Rachel Blake is real. Uh, this is something of a nightmare that occurs at Comic-Con when it's not uh, rehearsed. But oftentimes what will happen is someone will like basically like hijack the mic and just talk for so long with this big meandering question, whether it's due to stage fright or whatever. Uh, and it just you, you all feel like you're just trapped in the room. Uh, and that's horrible. But here, it seems like people were really into it with Rachel Blake. Right. When it's planned and it's for Hanzo and Jupe, it's a lot more fun. Yeah. Just for (laughs) Jupe. So honestly, in my opinion, I feel like the stage three of the ARG is the most work. And so basically, it all involves like finding chunks of a video. And there ended up being over 70 of them overall. And then if you found all 70 chunks, you could edit it together to like one video. Um, And to find the video chunks, you had to enter codes into a website and the codes all 70 of them were hidden all over the world in real places so like at comic-con damon lindelof had like his wristband like his uh comic-con wristband there was a code hidden on there so i guess you had to like find him or find a picture of him they were hidden in places like in magazine ads and on other commercials dj dan's website had some of the codes and the craziest one is that Jimmy Kimmel, who is a huge Lost fan, right. um, he had like a mug that he would, you know, drink his water out of on the show. And like on the mug, there was a code one one night. And like you had to know to, to watch the show and look for this code and what that code meant. And then that's how you get this video, which kind of unlocks stage four. I think that this is probably bad is my is my thinking on the matter uh that i i don't think that this is behavior that uh we should be encouraging like th- this is like uh this is where you're really starting to 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 negatively impact people's mental health by being like you have to look for for lost clues to the ARG everywhere you go in your life uh this is how uh intense paranoia is developed you're also basically asking people to do like a 40 hour work week for free to like edit together 70 videos. I mean, it's very clever. Yeah. It's just from Disney standpoint. That people actually figured it out to me. You know, like how, how did they actually get all the videos? It could have fallen apart here. This sounds like a rhetorical question, Ben, because not to judge, but clearly you're deep in this at this point. Uh, well, I mean, I wasn't at the time, but man, actually reading up on it, it was fascinating. Yeah. I couldn't believe the lengths. I don't know if it was, um, Harvey that spent all the time designing this, but the lengths they went to, to design this, it's just nuts. It is, it is crazy. And, and I think it, it, all of this, like joking aside speaks to, it, it is, it is, it is such a different experience. Lost is such a different experience depending on when you found it. Uh, if you were in on Lost at the time, none of this is probably a big surprise. But if you are one of the people who who has found Lost because it went to Netflix or now it's on Hulu or whatever, um, and you are now like uh, you've been brought into the era of like very serious TV and big serialized storytelling through like Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad or or whatever it is, and Lost has become something that you have found in like the back catalog of stuff of like, I now love prestige TV and I want to watch stuff. And people keep saying lost. I'll check out lost. This kind of shit speaks to the, the significantly huge cultural impact that it had that Disney 
ABC was throwing Mickey Mouse cash at this crazy enterprise, this huge initiative, this big advertising hook uh, that they were having for the third season of the show. This show was enormous. Yeah, I don't think it can even be imagined today. Like, if you were not around for the advertising juggernaut this was, it, it just doesn't exist anymore. Totally, totally. So, like, I think you know, it's it's funny to 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 throw stones at it and and poke fun at it, and there's definitely things to poke fun at. But I I think like the serious note for me is it speaks to the quality of the show that people were this invested. Um, that's really the thing. It speaks to the quality of the show that people were this invested and that TV existed, that, that this existed in an era of TV where um, a single show could capture the zeitgeist in this way. There's just so much content now that it, like even Game of Thrones, I don't know that Game of Thrones would have been able to pull something like this off. I also think it's worth pointing out, like, you know, we take for granted nowadays how much, you know, good TV there is, but also the incredible dedication that TV fans have to shows. Yeah. And that wasn't the case in 2004 and five. Like there were popular shows, you know, Desperate Housewives was also on ABC at this time and was incredibly popular. I also right. really liked that show. But like the idea of prestige television, getting people so rapidly addicted to it that they would you know, go to such great lengths to learn what the plot of a tangential story related only a little bit to the show was, I think also speaks volumes. Yeah, for sure. I think, I think that one of the things that this came at the exact right time was the way in which the internet was being used was really developing at a pace in those years as well. And so much of this stuff, I think, would have been completely unique in terms of the way you're using the internet at that point in time. Yeah, the only other ARG, and maybe there are many, many more of them, but the only other one that had crossed my radar was I Love Bees, which was related to Halo 2. The Dark Knight had a really big one. Um, the Dark Knight had a really big one that was all centering on um, Heath Ledger's uh, Joker. Uh, and Comic-Con was another venue for uh, like the Why So Serious campaign. That's the one that really pings on my radar when I think of ARGs. It's, it's the Lost ARG and the Dark Knight one. I don't remember how it wrapped up with the Dark Knight. ARGs kind of have sort of gone away um but they were as recent as i remember um uh there's a video that exists of me uh pounding the pavement for an amazing spider-man arg uh when i was working at mtv news i'll i'll try and find that and link to that in the show notes because it's actually a pretty funny video uh, they do still occasionally happen but i think yeah. that you know the, these are all corporations that are profit-based and it's like yeah. it's probably much cheaper to just yeah. have an instagram campaign yeah, yeah yeah i i think that um this is uh a very very like early 2000s uh this, this is very like an, an early portion of the century relic is the ARG. I think it's probably good that it's there uh, the way that um, uh, uh, Jenko jeans and mushroom cuts are left in the 90s. Absolutely. I. It's something that I like to hold over the younger people. Like, I lived through the ARG yeah. era. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we get this video that when it's pieced together from all 70 pieces, we we learn it's, a, it's an orientation video. It's a Dharma orientation video, um, but it doesn't feature... Our friend Marvin Candle, it features Alvar Hanzo, 
And um, basically, he explains that he founded the Dharma Initiative, and the reason was to save the world as we know it. And this is where we kind of learn what the Valenzetti equation is. The Valenzetti equation predicts the exact amount of time before humanity extinguishes itself. Valenzetti gave numeric values to the core environmental and human factors in his equation. And the idea is that if you plug the numbers for a 15, 16, 23, 42 into the Valenzetti equation, that is when humanity will go extinct. And Oliver Hanzo says that Dharma was founded to study the Valenzetti equation and to try to change the numbers, a.k.a. make humanity not go extinct. But it doesn't make sense. Right? No. Like, that, does not, that doesn't stand to scrutiny, does it, Ben? Oh, well, I don't think so. And the way I've made it make sense is, in my mind, by making Jacob basically Dr. Manhattan. So hear me out on this. It's like the end of the world was coming when the man in black was going to escape the island, get the cork out of the island and escape the island. And the only thing that stood in the way of the man in black is Jacob's candidates. And if I see Jacob as a kind of Dr. Manhattan figure, then actually he knows that at the point at which he dies, there's there's six candidates left, and that's 4, 8, 15, 16, 23, and 42. And uh, so this is kind of like a really um, skewed way of trying to make the Valenzetti equation equate what we actually see on the show, which is Jacob's candidates. I'm willing to accept that and think about the Valenzetti equation no further than this podcast. Yeah, that's totally fine. <laughs> I, that, but that's the best explanation I've, I've heard. But, so we get but, to, go ahead. But Josh, I'm really looking forward to seeing if Jacob as Dr. Manhattan holds, because that's a theory I like. Um, I think I think that there's there's value to that. Um, I think certainly there. I think especially with Hurley, I think that there is a sense uh, that he knows Hurley's going to be the guy. I I think that there are there are the the interactions between Jacob and Hurley to me strongly suggest that Jacob knows that in the long haul Hurley is the inheritor. Yeah. So what you're saying about the Valenzetti equation, like happy to leave it right here. I think what we see in season three is a, a drop off in ratings and it feels like a lot of people leaving the show at, at, at that point. And I feel like the big misstep the ARG made in getting people hyped about this stuff is that it never paid off on the show. And it felt like it was a completely different thing going in a completely different direction. And for those people who are fully invested in this as the solution to the numbers, like the show never gave them satisfaction for whatever amount of time they spent putting this video together and, and totally. getting this answer. Yeah. Season three is where we get Jacob and the, the Widmore corporation. They really move away from Hanzo in the numbers. Yeah. I think everybody should have any, anyone who participated should have been able to like submit a proof of participation to like hanzofoundation.org. Uh, and received at least a box of Apollo bars for their trouble. That actually brings us into stage four. So after the video, stage four comes around August of 2006, and there are a series of pop-up events all over the planet, at least in three English-speaking countries, um, where people distribute actual chocolate bars that are Apollo bars. 
And in the backstory of the ARG around this time, you learn that Thomas Middlework officially takes over Hanzo Foundation. And like a huge sweet tooth. The plot of stage four is like, we have to find Oliver Hanzo. He's a prisoner somewhere. But um, starting on August 23rd in New York City, and then over the summer in uh, places in the United States, including uh, Washington State, Indiana, Minnesota, Washington, D.C., California, Maine, Georgia, Pennsylvania, um, Texas, and Kentucky. And then also in the U.K. and Australia, there are these pop-up events where they, they're giving out Apollo bars. In the U.S., it was literally just like a dude on a street handing them out. Um, mm-hmm. In the U.K. and in Australia. <laughs> Don't trust that. Don't trust that at all. Well, if you look on like Lostpedia about this, you like a lot of people didn't know what the ARG was. They just were like, oh, free Ooh, chocolate. Free chocolate. <laughs> and it was real edible candy. So, yeah, you know, sure, hopefully something I think is really cool is that in the UK and Australia, you had to go to a comic book shop. Like there were certain participating comic book chains. Yeah. And they didn't have them on display in the store. You had to know to ask for them. And the way that you did that was you had to ask an employee of the comic book store what did one snowman say to the other? Oh, and then, and then they, the employee would special carrot cake flavored. The employee would bar. give you the candy bar. Exactly. Yeah. I think they're just chocolate flavored. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so there's there's also advertisements like in magazines and billboards for Apollo bars at this time. And uh, you learn kind of through those magazine ads that the Hanzo Corporation bought the company for Apollo bars. But this doesn't really play off in terms of a plot at all. It's just kind of like a cool pop-up candy bar event. Yeah. Um, but if you got one of these candy bars and you opened it up, the idea is it's supposed to be like a Hershey bar or something. So stamped in the chocolate, it should say Apollo, but you open the candy bar and it doesn't say Apollo. It says, where is Alvar.com? Wow. Rachel Blake got into the, into the Wonka factory. Exactly. And so if you went to where is there was a counter. There is a there is an Apollo bar commercial, right? That aired on TV. Yes, I think we also have yeah, that audio. We, we yep. actually do have that sound. I, do, I, I think that'd be fun to play. Let's let's see if I can if I can cue that up real quick. Guess what's coming into your Okay. <laughs> I think um, I heard Paul Addison's dog in the middle of <laughs> uh, Ben, this is the next assignment. We found out who created D- the DJ Dom song. Can you get us on the path of pounding the pavement to find out who uh, created the Apollo Bar jingle? I'm on it. Okay, cool. Great. great. You know, uh, that reminds me, like that jingle reminds me of when Cloverfield came out, which is another bad robot production. There were slusho ads, which was like a slurpy drink. Yep, yep. It also reminds me of Fruity Odie bars from um, Firefly. So there might be a connection there with like a production studio. I don't remember Firefly well enough to remember what a Fruity Odie bar is. But. In the movie Serenity, the, the um, I can't remember her name, but the sort of super samurai girl... Uh, she sees a commercial for Fruity Odie bars and there's a secret code in it which unlocks her brain mm. okay. and it's turns River. her into an assassin. River? River. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, you'd go to wheresalvar.com and there was a counter and like a, a, a box you could type into. And what people needed to do was enter the serial number of the candy bar they received and that would make the counter go up. 
And once the counter hit a high enough number, like once enough fans entered enough serial numbers into the website, that unlocked the fifth and final stage of the ARG. Okay. And what happened in stage five? Well, um, there is a special guest on the DJ Dan podcast. Uh, <laughs> Rachel shows up and uh-huh. she basically kind of just outlines, you know, the rest of the story, like what she found. And uh, eventually they release also like a final video where Rachel finds Alvar Hanzo. And yeah, I think we should play that one, John. It's worth playing. Absolutely. So she finds Alvar Hanzo and there's like a last minute twist that no one saw coming. Okay, let me... So this is uh, from video of Rachel going to Norway. Rachel Blake. You recognize me. This is her with Alvar How did you get past security? I have contacts in your foundation. The nurse who comes in regularly to take your blood was called away on a family emergency. I'm her replacement. (laughs) Clever. So, did you come to draw blood? How can you joke after everything you've done? You brought in a recording device. No. This is between you and me. I can hear it, Rachel. It's in your bag. You must have thought you could walk into my home armed with nothing but the truth and extract a confession from me. Something like that? (laughs) I find your idealism touching. And... Since it's the truth you came for, I suppose that's what I should give you on tape. The men you see here were for the foundation. They do not work for me. The job is to keep me inside, to keep me from talking to anyone of importance. I am a prisoner. No, you are not dodging the blame. No, I'm not. I am to blame for training Thomas Werner Middlework, for grooming him to be my successor, for giving him all the tools he needed to do the awful things he has. They cannot kill me, but he can keep me locked up while he kills millions of what... He is the one who's done all the things that you've exposed, and much worse, all in my name. And yours. Mine. That's why you came. The reason why you've investigated the foundation. You wanted to learn more about the trust fund that paid for your upbringing. You wondered how a single mother could pay for an education and all the advantages you were given. But you are a beautifully intelligent young woman. And you were able to trace the funds back to the foundation. You searched. And even as you realized all the evil that was being done, even as you turned against everything that the foundation now stands for, you kept on because you knew the path would lead to your father. What? Yeah, so he's he's her dad. What? Bad and, dad. Yeah, bad dad. That's the sequel to oh Bad Twin, God. and it's much more sexual. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what a twist! Alvar Hanza was Rachel Blake's father the whole time. Yeah, so that's why she's so interested, right? Is she's trying to find her dad. Ultimately, again, this doesn't really pay off. Like that's the end of the ARG. The big takeaways are that Alvar founded Dharma. 
He did it to save the world and change the numbers. And um, that's basically it. And then none of this ever comes up again. And and none of it really matters. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, there's some shit that goes down with Middlework, right? Like, there's there's explosions and Middlework has a virus and he leaves and he says, humanity needs me now more than ever. I have the will. I have the virus. I won't fail. But we just never find out what happens to Middlework. Yeah, there are little, much smaller ARGs in between season three and four and four and five and five and six, but they never really touch on this plot again. And yeah, basically, like the idea is Thomas Middlework takes over Hanzo's mission and he decides that the best way to save humanity is to come up with like a cure. And so they test this virus on people in Africa to like try to cure them. But then it turns into a pandemic, a very sensitive subject now. And, you know, then there's all these organs and things. So he's basically like kind of an ends justifies the means kind of a guy in terms of how he wants to save the world. So he thinks he's the good guy, which is very losty. And but they never follow up with this, really. Ben, I am ready to uh, blame our current global crisis on Thomas Middlework. I think we have proof that that is the case. I believe Rachel Uh, Blake. And and it's good to know that Rachel Blake is one of the best cowboys. <laughs> yeah, I mean everybody's got daddy issues. Uh, so add Alvar Hanzo to the list of best daddies. Hey, look, I think that this is a disappointing finish to the Alvar Hanzo stuff. Uh, and I like I I get the you know this it, it is such a it is such a relic of its time um, that something that is like lightly mentioned on the show then gets like lionized in this way. And I, I don't know what the correlation between how many of the people that were deeply involved in the ARG versus how many people were watching loss, like how, how much of that you like scoop out of the overall audience because this kind of lands with a thud. Um, but I know for me, like when Alvar Hanzo showed up on the show for the first time, I'm like, oh man, that's it. That's the end boss. Uh, and then he's really never mentioned on the show, like to the point that they have to like, when they do bring up a Hanzo, it's now going to be like Magnus Hanzo, because at least that far down on the family tree, like that's unspoiled by the ARG. Um, so I, I think, it, I think it's really fun. I think it's a great relic. And like, if you're really into it, hats off to you. Um, but I, I, for me, it's nothing more than like a really fascinating relic that really speaks to the size of the lost fandom and the, the cultural impact that this show had. But to like try and assign like any greater meaning to the show via the Valenzetti equation for the numbers beyond what you posited, Ben, which I like, um, like Thomas Middlework is secretly the smoke monster. I'll stop short of that. Uh, you know, I think it, it, it's a lark, uh, the ARG and, and really nothing more than that. But a, a fun trip down memory lane, for sure. I'm, I'm for sure for some people, I've, I like that they invested very heavily in For sure, for I sure. I can't imagine how many hours some people must have poured into this. For sure. To, for to sure. its credit, nothing that happens in the ARG is later contradicted in the show. Unlike something in Bad Twin, where we learn that the Hansa, or that the Widmore Corp is, is very different. Everything that happens could easily be canon. Um, but yeah, I don't know if it's worth the investment that people put into it. I kind of think that the idea was to get new fans, right? They have this Comic-Con thing. They have these candy bars popping up all over the world. Advertisements. They had weird tie-ins with like Sprite and Jeep. And I, I think that they were... Jupe. It's Jupe. Oh, yes, of course. 
drive a new 2020 jupe yes <laughs> no no so i think they were trying to like you know bring in new fans like what's that weird billboard what's this free candy bar let me go to this website um and i don't know how much that paid off either yeah yeah i didn't even get an apollo bar that's that's sad to me yeah, you know, I so I was like 15 when this was all going down. So I was very big into phase one and phase two. And then, you know, by the time phase three came around, it was a little bit beyond my abilities. Yeah. Um, and then I was tangentially still connected when phase four happened. But then, you know, n- there were no Apollo bar pop ups within like a five hour drive of me. I think the closest one was the one in Indianapolis. And so, you know, I, I, as a 15 year old, I couldn't drive to Indianapolis from Detroit. So that's kind of when I tapped out. Um, beyond the bad twin and the ARG of it all, of course, there's like a thousand literary references littered throughout season two of Lost. Take us, take us through the highlights. And I think by, by couching it in that, we prevent ourselves from being dragged for not mentioning the polar bear comic, uh, because we just won't be able to mention everything right now. We're going to mention the highlights. We'll go through the highlights. And you can write in to down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com and tell us what your favorite literary references in season two have lost if we didn't get to it here. All right. So let's dive into some books. The first ones are the ones that actually show up on the show and are referred to in the dialogue. Um, these are just alphabetical beyond that category. Um, the first one is Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom. This mm-hmm. is the book that Sawyer's reading on the beach. He says it's predictable and doesn't have enough sex. Um, if you've not read this literary young adult classic, it's a very good story about an adolescent girl um, going through puberty and coming to terms with her religion. Yeah, uh, makes what Sawyer said pretty gross. Yeah, it's it's pretty gross, but um, it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't really have any connection to the show. Like, I think that it was put there so that they could make the Sawyer joke. Um, the only thing I was able to come up with racking my brain was just the religious overtones of both the book and the show. I think that that matters. I, I, and that, I think that speaks to what I'm, I was trying to, to get into at the top of the show is like, these are topics that matter very much to, to Damon and Carlton as evidenced by, uh, you know, not just the end of the show, but the whole discourse of man of science versus man of faith. Um, I think if this was a book that they have a fondness for, or they know that viewers of a certain age will have a fondness for, um, to get them their gears turning about, asking those questions about about religion and our place in the world and the presence of God and all of that, um, that that is that is feeding off of their inspirations in a way that I think does feed the greater themes of the show. Yeah, it goes to that Carlton quote, right? Because if you're a young you know, teenager and you're watching Lost or if you're a preteen and then you see that book and you're like, oh, I'm going to pick that book up because it's Lost. But then you read it. It's a really good book for kids to read. And so like you've enriched your life. Yes. And I, I think, are you there, God? It's me, John Locke, is pretty much the end game yes. of season two, right? Totally, totally, totally. Absolutely. So the next book here is the Brothers Karama, I can't say this, Karamazov, Karamazov, the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. Uh, I've not read this. Uh, I have read a book by Dostoevsky called Notes from the Underground, which is really good. Um, but this is the book that Locke gives Ben to read when he's still Henry Gale. And they talk about how he doesn't want to read it. Why don't you have Stephen King? That kind of sets the this scene. Is how I reacted to Watership Down. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and having not read it, I looked up a synopsis and I think this is interesting. So the story of the brothers Karamazov is it's about four brothers and they're driven by rage and revenge. Um, and they work together to murder their father. 
And I think there's really obvious connections here because all the best cowboys have daddy issues. But I think it's very interesting that Ben and Locke are the ones sharing this book um, because they both kill their father, even though Locke doesn't physically do it. Yeah. And also, and also that Ben kills a father figure in killing Jacob later on down the line. Yeah, definitely. So that that's kind of cool. And then another fun thing is just that um, the, there was an actual real life philosopher named Mikhail Brahunin, Bakunin. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's mentioned in the book as one of the friends of one of the brothers. Awesome. Uh, you, you guys, you and Mike already talked about Our Mutual Friend uh, by Charles Dickens. This is the book that Desmond wants to read right before he dies. And uh, you guys mentioned this. But just to recap, uh, it's a story a lot about relationships between fathers and daughters. Um, and the other cool thing about the book, which relates to Lost, is that as the title implies, the book is all about people and their relationships with other people who know each other. So everyone in the book knows people who know each other. Can we just stop down for a second on Desmond? So Desmond, he nearly, well, he crashes on the island in a sailboat. He nearly blows up in the hatch twice. He nearly dies from time travel sickness in season four. He gets shot by Ben Linus. We never see him actually read a page of this book. What do you think would induce Desmond to actually read Our Mutual Friend? Yeah, it's a good question. Like, when do you know that you're at the end? <laughs> you know, that's the thing. That's why the guy has that quote in, in the prisons. Like, it's a good idea if you know when you're going to die. I like the idea that um, because of t- his relationship to time and time travel, that like something weird got screwed up. There's like a little bit of wibbly wobbly timey wimey going on. And so he will never die until he reads the book. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And so it's sort of like never I just I just it. watched uh, The Good Place. I, walk, I watched my way through that. No spoilers. Yeah, I won't spoil it. But like the idea of like when to move on. I like the idea of Desmond being like whenever he's ready, yeah, then he'll read the book. Yeah. See, my theory was that he just never read any Dickens at all. And the <laughs> idea is that by saying I've read all of Dickens but this, then everyone will just ask about our mutual friend and why he's not reading it. And that's, not, very, not that's a good tactic. That's good. Test. Like yeah. Yeah, his, his Dickens knowledge. Which is very common if you live in the in the British Isles, is people saying, hey, what's your Dickens knowledge? <laughs> that's right. Speaking of other 19th century authors, the next one on here is Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Um, the orientation film is on the bookshelf behind the Turn of the Screw. And uh, Desmond says that, like, it's behind the Turn of the Screw. Uh, some of the silly references. One of the kids in the book is named Miles. Um, so that's kind of fun. Turn of the Screw is referenced in Bad Twin. Also, uh, Paul Artisan's co-dog daddy says that it's his favorite book and the greatest mystery ever. OK, um, this is like a Victorian ghost story uh, about a governess watching over these mysterious children. Like she gets hired to babysit these kids and they're really weird. Um, and uh, this is the first this is one of the first stories sort of in the literary canon with a big twist at the end. And the big twist at the end is that the governess and the children are are dead. They're the it's, ghosts. The it's a ghost story. Ghost and she's from the POV of the ghosts. Yeah, she thinks the house is haunted, and it is. But the twist is that she's the one haunting the house. Right. Um, and then another fun kind of coincidental lost connection is that this was made into a movie in the early 2000s starring Nicole Kidman uh, called The Others. Yep, 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 yep. That was my first exposure to, to Turn of the Screw. Uh, and I believe that it is going to be the subject of um, a Netflix series that is from the Haunting of Hill House team. 
um, that they are they are adapting oh, wow. this as their next uh, mini series. Uh, I would expect that 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 could come out this year. Um, I th- I think that it may have uh, filmed already. Don't that is that is a book I have read, and um, it's very stilted. It's very Victorian. Um, so if you're used to your Stephen King ghost stories, it might be kind of difficult to get through. But I do recommend it. It's very atmospheric. It's been the basis for so many different adaptations, though. And so, it's the foundation of the modern yeah, ghost story. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so this one really we could do an entire separate podcast about. I talked about it a little in season one, but the Bible is a major player in season two because we get Mr. Echo like talking about the Bible. He finds a Bible on the island and he makes a lot of um, references to the Bible. So there's a, there's a whole discussion here. Ben, I know you kind of did a little research on this. Well, I mean, I didn't need to do research. <laughs> and so here's the here's the things I thought of fire and water. Echo talks to Claire about John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, and then Echo ends up uh, preparing the way for John when he dies with the smoke monster, and he says, "You're next." Um, I thought that was kind of neat. Yep. Then there's Ben telling Jack the story of Thomas the Apostle who doubted Jesus's resurrection, and Ben's trying to convince Jack to get back to the island um, without needing proof, but. When Ben gets back to the island, he sees the resurrected John Locke and he can't believe it himself. And he tells son, dead is dead. And that the fact that John Locke's walking around the island terrifies the hell out of me, um, which is interesting given that he ultimately still gets manipulated by the man in black in Locke's body. And then we have Richard, who is reading the story of Jesus's temptation by Satan, and then he lands on the island in the same episode and undergoes his own temptation by the man in black who's trying to convince him to kill Jacob. So I think that um, there's a whole lot of parallels, very deliberate parallels between the Bible and okay. what's going on, especially with Jacob and, and the man in black. Obviously. Yeah, I, th- I think that that is that is very clear. That um, if it to the, to the idea that Damon and Carlton knew what lost was the entire time, I think they know it as a story of like that mythic battle of good versus evil. Um, so what better touchstone to reference than the big one, you know? Yeah. Right. All right. So uh, that leads us to the next category. So these are books seen on screen, but aren't really referenced at all. And I got a couple of really quick fire ones here. These are just books that you can discern the title of on bookshelves in the hatch um, that we have after all these years by Susan Isaacs. Um, this is a pulpy romance novel about a woman on the run for murder. Ooh, Paul um, Artisan, big fan. Yeah. In the book, the lady is innocent, but uh, the connection to Kate is kind of obvious here because in the book, um, the woman runs into her childhood sweetheart, whose name is Tom. And uh, there's a couple other sort of connections to Kate's story here. And a, a fun fact with a lot of these is that most of these were published after the incident happened. The incident on the island happened around, um, I think, 1990 or, or the early 80s. Well, the, the incident on the show with the hatch is is like the 70s, right? But right. then when Dharma gets defunded... Uh, like, is, uh, when By defunded, do you mean uh, extinguished, murdered? Yes, that's yeah. the, the the nice phrase I was trying yeah. to use. Yes. Dar- Dharma gets defunded, I believe, in the in the late eighties is my is my memory of it. And so all these books came after that. Um, and so depending on how you look at it, it can be an anachronism where they shouldn't be in the hatch. But I think a fun canon version is that maybe the palate drops don't just include food for the body, but food for the soul. Yeah, makes <laughs> sense. 
Um, and then two more really pulpy sort of uh, detective models. We have Dirty Work by Stuart Woods and High Hand by Gary Phillips. Um, these are just detective stories. They have nothing that I could discern whatsoever related to Lost. They're just, you know, books to fill out the shelf. But if you like your pulpy detective novels, um, that's something maybe you could look into. Uh, the next one that actually kind of has some connections is we see Sawyer in the episode Maternity Leave. He's reading Lancelot by Walker E. Percy. Uh, and this is a story I learned is about a lawyer who murders his wife by blowing up their house Whoa. and then eventually ends up in a mental ward. Wow. So we have a lot of plot connections with Hurley. Kate and yeah. Hurley. Yeah. And uh, those are people uh, I know Jack is his only true friend, but I think that Sawyer is pretty close to Kate and Hurley. I wonder if at some point he was like, boy, this book is weirdly familiar. Yeah. And as far as lawyers go in the world of Lost, we're really looking at you, Susan, You're definitely yeah. capable of doing such things. Yeah, There aren't really any good lawyers in yeah. Lost. Uh, <sighs> they Sorry, they really Sorry. aren't any good lawyers in literature <laughs> or television. It's not my fault. What so about uh, Phoenix Wright, attorney at law? It's a video game. What, or Harvey Birdman, attorney at law. It's my <laughs> yeah, favorite true. lawyer. Oh, there is Atticus Finch. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's a, a cornerstone law book. Well, not a yeah. law book, you know what I mean? All right, next book on my list here is The Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. This is a short story. Um, it's not mentioned on screen, but Locke kind of flips through it absentmindedly in the episode The Long Con. Uh, this is a really good short story, and it's quick. I recommend it. Um, it's about a Civil War soldier who is being hung. Uh, he's being hanged, I should say. Uh, he's being killed uh, for, you know, he's executed. And um, basically in the, I'm going to spoil it, but you should still read it. But basically, uh, as he's being hanged, the rope snaps and he escapes. And he spends a, the narrative of the story trying to get home. And um, the narrative uses a lot of really interesting flashbacks and there's there's not time travel, but it, the narrative plays with time in really confusing ways. And he has these very vivid hallucinations. Um, and the twist ending is that he actually didn't survive the hanging and that this entire thing was a dream that he had in the seconds before, you know, the life extinguished out of his life. Um, and another kind of connection to last is that twist. He hears whispers in the woods as he's trying to run home. So there's like mysterious whispers. And um, yeah, I think the connections to last are obvious here. The idea of, you know, are they dead? Are they not dead? Um, what happens in the moment before you die? Even what they show in the end of season six of this sort of after place that is where you're reunited with your loved ones. Um, the Civil War soldier is, is going to his loved ones in this weird sort of sideways after place. Yeah. Also, this is one of the only episodes of The Twilight Zone that was not written by their in-house staff. It was the one of only two episodes of The Twilight Zone that was an adaptation. Um, and it's a really good episode of The Twilight Zone if you're not a reader. I haven't seen nearly enough Twilight Zone. Oh, That's Josh, it's wonderful. That, that I got to that I got to fix at some point in time. Well, put that on the queue of, of podcasts yeah. uh, to, to do post-show recaps on. I would happily uh, be the rod how's to your the, Sterling. How's the new, uh, the new uh, Twilight Zone? Uh, I, I didn't love it. Not, not great. I, the, the consensus is that it's not good at all. I thought it was fine. I, I'm not that low on it, but yeah. the consensus is it's not great. Yeah, okay. All right, uh, a couple more here. Uh, Rainbow Six by Tom Clancy is seen on a bookshelf. This is another one that like isn't really connected to Lost too much, although the plot of Rainbow Six is about a government agent um, who are taking on terrorists who are trying to release a plague on the world. 
And uh, there in the show, there's, you know, Dharma talking about sickness on the island. And then as we just talked about in the lost experience, there's the idea of the Hanzo Foundation releasing a virus. Um, and so there, there are some kind of tenuous connections there. All I got to say is that a book about people releasing pandemics on the world slaps a little different in 2020. Slaps a little different right now. Yeah. A little, pull your punches a little bit if you could. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's not, that's why I'm moving on from there. So the yeah. last of my books seen on screen is another book that I've read that I really, really love. It's called The Third Policeman. It's by Flan O'Brien. It's a really bizarre book. Um, the plot is very convoluted, but basically, um, it's about a protagonist whose obsession is with this bizarre philosopher named DeSelby, and he wants to read everything DeSelby has ever written, and um, so that he can publish like a biography. There's also murder for money happening in the book. Eventually, the uh, the main character finds a box. Um, that he thinks is full of like money for uh, ransom, but he finds that it's full of a substance called the omnium, and it's the fundamental essence of the universe. Ooh. And that's just like the beginning of the book, and then it gets even weirder from there. Um, DeSelby, eventually he kind of finds DeSelby, and DeSelby is a skeptic on the nature of reality in the universe and physics. Um, and then towards the end of the book, the narrator gets trapped in a weird underground structure with two policemen who he's trying to tell his story to. And, uh, it, it's a little bit like waiting for Godot where like they, it's just repetition. Like he gets stuck in a weird time loop where he never gets to finish telling the policeman his story. And, um, it just, he's just goes on forever and he's being tortured by the inability to tell the story about DeSelby and the Omnium and all of these things. And I think this has a lot of really great connections to Lost. We have an underground labyrinth that is sort of like hell. Um, the, the sort of implication in the book is that the, the the policemen are in purgatory because they were bad people and uh, yeah and there's time loops um i think the box full of omnium that can like get you whatever you want because it's the substance of the universe like that's there's a like, lot of but that's what ben's yeah. going to talk to Locke about and imagine a, a magic box yeah, absolutely. Like, definitely Ben has read this book. Ben, uh, not the Ben behind the curtain, maybe, but certainly Ben. Uh, oh, I but it's interesting that um, with this book, writer Craig Wright, who's probably the guy who got the book onto the series, says that the book's key to understanding the series. And I actually think he's kind of right in that if the Omnium is the fundamental essence of the universe, isn't that kind of what the island is? Absolutely. And the other thing in the book, too, is that he finds the Omnium like in this underground labyrinth with the other policemen. But he almost like in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, like he can't take the Omnium out. He's that's why he can't leave this purgatorial labyrinth is because he can't he can't leave with the Omnium. And I think that like the idea of the essence of the universe is on the island. The island is the cork. I think there's a lot of connections there. Although eventually Damon and Carlton did admit that they have never read The Last Policeman. So uh, they, <laughs> it's either a coincidence or it's their writing staff. Like oh, Maybe it's funny. people that that's wrote with funny. them that brought a lot of this in. That's really funny. That's great. All right. And then to wrap up, my last category is these are just some things that were on Lostpedia as things that have sort of some thematic th similarities or verbal references that people make. So these ones are the most tenuous, but there's there might be some meat here for some fun. Um, for example, the first one, Tom Friendly is referred to as Bluebeard by Sawyer. He calls Sawyer Bluebeard. Um, and for those of you who don't know, that is a French folktale 
about a man who has a habit of murdering his wives. He goes through like eight different wives. How, do you get, how is that a, like a oh a habit? I suppose I was good. I thought well, it was not one. Does it over and over yeah, again? Like I, yeah. you know, I really like to eat Oreos, and I shouldn't, but I do, and like that's a habit. Yeah, it's a bad habit. Um, but the the narrative of I mean, it's a folktale that's been adapted a million times. I actually saw an operetta once uh, that was like the Bluebeard operetta. So like, th- there's a million different ways to tell this story. Um, but generally, the narrative of the story, whether it's a book or not, is from the perspective of his current wife, and she's like unlocking the mystery of like what is her husband up to, and um, she kind of learns that he kills all his wives, and she tries to escape her fate basically. Um, and so that's in my head, that's like, you know, Lost is a show about fate and people avoiding fate. We get in seasons um, four and five um, with Daniel, sort of that idea. Right. For sure. Um, next up is the Epic of Gilgamesh. This is when uh, Locke is doing his crossword in the hatch. Like one of the answers is Gilgamesh. It's um, the clue is a friend of Enkidu. And uh, this is actually one of the oldest stories in all of fiction. It was written on tablets sometime in like 700 B.C. Um, It's one of the origins of sort of narrative fiction in a lot of ways, which is really cool. And it's um, it's not a single narrative. It's like a series of adventures between these two characters, Enkidu and Gilgamesh. Um, And Gilgamesh is kind of like a godlike king. And Enkidu is sort of like a wild man. And um, one of the connections that I think is interesting is we get obviously the man in black and Jacob are kind of these ancient or beings. Um, but one of the adventures in the Epic of Gilgamesh uh, revolves around searching for the fountain of youth so that they can both be immortal. Um, and so you can also draw connections between the relationship between Jacob and Richard Alpert, where um, Jacob is sort of this godlike figure. And in Abiturno, um Richard Alpert kind of starts out as maybe not a wild man, but not the, quite the suave person he becomes. Uh, the Gilgamesh that I'm most familiar with is the Gilgamesh who recurs throughout the Final Fantasy series and has multiple arms and multiple swords, and he is often a summon that you can use in your party and your fights against monsters. But in some cases, like in Final Fantasy V, he's actually like a pretty fleshed-out character. Uh, there's a great song uh, called The Bridge of Gilgamesh uh, that is one of the, the great tracks of Final Fantasy V from uh Nobuo Matsu, who is the Michael Giacchino of uh the of the Final Fantasy universe. Well that's funny because I my connection uh to the character Inkadu is um there was a game for the PC in like the mid nineties called Star Wars X Wing Alliance. Uh it was like a flight simulator game and uh at the beginning of the game your main character is part of like a family who ships um like spice around the galaxy and the name of your family ship is the Inkadu. Right. So both non sequiturs, really. Yeah, but I think that they, they <laughs> two non sequiturs that, that do well together. Yeah, basically play more video games. I think is this is the solution here. Yeah, just Just to make sure that I get the song name right, it's a uh, battle at the big bridge. Is that awesome Gilgamesh tune? I mean, that title is really cool. Yeah, perhaps we'll close out the podcast listening to. Oh, that'd the, be so awesome! At the, at the big bridge. So All right, so next really up, this neither is, here nor there, but it's it's a it's a bop that slaps. I do like bops that slap. Next up, I have the I Ching or the I Ching, um, which is sort of one of the oldest Chinese texts. I, that is, I own this. I own the do you? I Ching. I do. Yeah, uh, a friend of mine um, who is in recovery uh, and has dedicated his life uh, to helping others through recovery really leans on this a lot like every day uses the I Ching to kind of um like scout out the day uh and like censor themselves 
a, a huge piece of their meditation. And it was recommended to me. And I, I'm a hard take on this kind of thing. Um, so I, I love it in, in, in principle. Um, I, it's harder for me in, in practice. So I haven't really utilized it. Um, but yeah, go, go ahead and, and, and fill us in on, on what the I Ching is. It, I guess it, I shouldn't be surprised. Like on a grade reading level, it's probably a bit more dense of a read than Watership Down. <laughs> well, you know, you <laughs> yeah. hop around. You hop around. Uh, yeah. You don't have to sit there and read the I Ching cover to cover. In fact, I think that's discouraged. So the, the I Ching is originally a Chinese text. It's, it's thousands of years old. It's used for divination and it uses the concept of numerology to sort of predict, um, you know, the future or whatever. So it's a bit like astrology, which I know is really popular uh, kind of right now. And it's been adopted by a lot of Eastern um, uh, cultures. And it's, it's, as you have alluded to, kind of made its way to the West. The way that this connects um, to Lost is that the concept of Dharma actually ties pretty closely to the I Ching. And the Dharma logo, those sort of dots and dashes that circle the Dharma logo, those are called the Bagua. And those um, are a part of the I Ching. So those have to do with like the eight fundamental pieces of reality. Um, and then also, if you're a fan of flags and vexillology, um, the I Ching is also seen on the um, Korean flag, the South Korean flag. Cool. But that's neither here nor there. Um, next up, we have Julius Caesar. It's a play by Shakespeare. Um, he was also Sorry, a real person. Drop. Did you say Julius Caesar? <laughs> he did. I'm having a Julius Caesar because I've just read like 10,000 words about a bad twin. <laughs> But uh, anyway, uh, Julius Caesar is a play by Shakespeare. And um, the only real connection directly to Lost is the line that Sawyer says, you too, Brutus. That's a line from the play at Two Brute. Um, but I think there are some interesting connections to the play because it's about the downfall of Julius Caesar um, as, a, as a, a ruler. And it includes the betrayal of his closest ally, Brutus. Yeah. Um, so the line read is interesting because like Sawyer sees himself as sort of the sheriff in town. Right. And so he's being betrayed um, specifically by Locke in that line. Um, but as basically one of the major plot lines of the second half of season two is the major betrayal of Michael um, from all his friends. Totally. No. Yeah, that is, that tracks really hard. Uh, so that's, that's great to have that in here. And certainly as, as early as two for the road, the episode in which Michael is going to make that move, um, that, that's, de that definitely feels like that is, that is nodding towards that, where when you go back and you watch two for the road that you'll be able to, to read, uh, yeah, when you hear that line now, you're like, yeah, oh, they're sure. kind of pointing to yeah. the shooting that's about to yes, happen. Yes, exactly. hundred percent. I'd have a couple more. These are really quick because this, uh, this is the most tenuous connection. So we're going to kind of lightning round these. Um, but we have the Odyssey by Homer, which is an epic poem. A lot of people have to read at least part of this in high school in the United States. Um, most people are familiar with the concept of the Odyssey. Um, we have Odysseus or, um, and he's the, the main character and he goes off to fight in the Peloponnesian Wars. And then the story of the Odyssey is him trying to come home to his wife. Um, and the parallels here are interesting with um, Desmond, right? So Desmond is kind of Odysseus because he gets trapped on this island and he's trying to get home to his wife or his who he wants to be his wife. Penny. Um, Odysseus, his wife is called Penelope and yeah. Desmond's wife is is um, is Penelope. Shoot, is Penny. Um, and also the idea of getting trapped on an island, right? Odysseus gets washed up on this mysterious island ruled by gods that no one else can get to. He's menaced by a cyclops, which is kind of, you can talk about Mikhail here being a cyclops. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is something that like, there's no reference to the Odyssey directly, 
in um, Lost whatsoever, but there's a lot of narrative similarities between what Desmond goes through, and I think that's kind of fun. Um, I'm going to just skip that one because it's not even worth it. Uh, there's this one here. So Lostpedia says The Pearl by um, John Steinbeck is a, is a connection because of The Pearl Station. Um, it's, a, it's a novella um, that's like a parable about... Um, it's a parable about having too much wealth but not enough status. Um, I, again, I think that's kind of a really tenuous connection, but you can talk about like Hurley wins the lottery and he's like a millionaire. And what does he do? He like buys um, a recording studio and becomes DJ Dom. Like he doesn't, you know, enter into high society. Um, Pearl and- is a devastating story. Oh yeah. I've not read it. It's tough. It's tough. It has, a. it's very bleak. It's very, very bleak. Uh, yeah. Seek, <laughs> okay. Seek so- it out if your stomach is ready for it. I do like a good, sad story. We got two podcasts and and two hours into the second podcast, and we've officially found a book that Josh has read. Yeah. And that John has not. That's a good point. How the turns table. Yes. (laughs) DJ Tom in the house. All right. So the last quickie here is apparently there's a book by a woman named Susan Coolidge called What Katie Did. And uh, there's clearly a connection there between... I don't think this is on purpose necessarily, but there's the title of the episode, what Kate did. And apparently this is another Victorian book and it's about a headstrong girl who loves horses. Um, that's, <laughs> that's about as deep as it gets, but it's, yeah, it's funny good, that there's though. a book with that title. That's good. Um, and then my last one, this one has a actually a more overt reference, but I wanted to close on a strong note. So we have the wizard of Oz by L Frank Baum. And this, this has a lot of direct references. So the yeah. name Henry Gale, Yep. Right. Exactly. He's a character in The Wizard of Oz. Um, there's hot air balloons in both. Um, most people have probably seen the movie, even if you've not read the children's book. Um, we get a lot of direct episode titles from The Wizard of Oz. Right. The man behind the curtain, the Ben behind the curtain is yep. a, is a title to reference The Wizard of Oz. So is there's no place like home in season four. Um, and there's a fun little line read in season two between Locke and Ben, which is almost a word for word line read between Dorothy and the Tin Man. Um, Ben says, or I'm sorry, Locke says, you came back for me. This happens in lockdown, right? You came back for me. Um, and then Ben says, of course I did. Uh, what did you think? I was going to leave you here. And, uh, that, that happens between Dorothy and the Tin Man. So I think that's, it's too close to being word for word. Yeah. um, To be a coincidence. That's really cool. And then thematically we have like, obviously Jacob is kind of the wizard right behind the curtain. That's the episode. The man behind the curtain involves like the cabin and like, uh, sort of who's in charge of the islands. And then another fun reference is that both Harold Perrineau and Triple uh, A were on a TV show called Oz, um, which George Michael from Arrested Development <laughs> yeah, once made a big mistake for The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> he made a huge mistake. Uh, and that's everything that I have. So that's it. Well, you can call the man behind the curtain The Wizard of Oz, but if you call the Ben behind the curtain The Wizard of Oz, we've got a problem. Yes. That, right. That, that won't fly. Yeah, is definitely. there like a single? I know that kiwi is a, is a common demonym for yeah, for New Zealand. Like a single syllable phrase that people use like Oz. No, nah, kiwi's, kiwi's the one. Which they, is why it always troubles you when I eat a, when I talk about eating whole kiwi. kiwi. I know we call that kiwi fruit, Josh. It's pretty important. Kiwi is an endangered bird. If you are eating kiwi, you're going to get arrested. Well, the bird that has the largest egg to body ratio is that right? Yes. No, I didn't know that. Okay. It's um, insane. It looks very painful. 
Um, all right. Well, we, I, I will try and uh, amend my my kiwi eating habits to only include kiwi fruits rather than birds. Certainly, no hurly birds will be harmed in the process of future wiggler meals. Um, as far as future wiggler meals are concerned, next up on my plate is season three. This is officially the end of our season two of Lost coverage, and next week we're moving in to the season three premiere. Uh, which itself has uh, tons of literary references that we will one day talk about, I am sure, on another version of this podcast. From Season the- 3 opens with a book club. Opens with a book club. It's a tale of two cities. It's the name of the episode. See, I know stuff. Uh, Is this so- Probably not. It'll be fun. It'll. It, it's. I'm. I'm really excited again to season three. I obviously gave my hot take at the end of the season two feedback show of how much I love season three. Um, before we close out, I, I would love to just get um, from both of you what you're looking forward to most about entering this era of the show. Uh, John, I'll throw it to you first. I I mean, I don't want to just echo what you had said on the previous one, but really like season three is the lowest of lows, but I also think it's the highest of highs. So it's like you run the full gamut. I I love season two so much. And I think I, I like it more than most people. I think it gets a bum rap, but I think you can say like it's it's uneven without really hitting the heights or the lows that you get in season three. So I just I, I like big emotions and, and big feelings, you know, how about you, Ben? I have a real love-hate relationship with season three. I uh, I think there's two episodes in there that could get a flat 0.0. From, Whoa! Uh, yeah, looking at you, further instructions and in, in Stranger in a Strange Land. And, and this is the season where I really hate the lock plot line. I think The Man from Tallahassee is a bottom 10 episode for me, which is what? probably my hottest lost take. That's pretty hot. That is a very hot take. And my guess is that when we wash up the uh, the season feedback for season three, the average episode rating is going to be the lowest by a mile. But I still actually agree with both of you that season three might be the best season. And it's just because those highs, they're just so high. Yeah. I'm also really excited to like listen to you and Mike walk through, especially those controversial episodes. Um, some of my least favorite episodes of season one and two are ones that I've now really come to reconsider because of your tutelage or like on the flip side, like I never had a problem with whatever the case may be, but like looking through your eyes, I realized that it's, it's a, it's hot garbage. So yeah. I'm excited to get to like stranger in a strange land, which is probably my least favorite episode and i'm excited to like be challenged yeah well i'm i'm and i and i i hope that i i've made it clear that like if, if stranger in a strange land like i think is an easy target like you can just sort of like uh give that like uh, a big wedgie and call it the worst episode of lost and that's just like an easy thing because it's the tattoos episode uh i wouldn't really challenge that i would just i i would challenge the notion that any episode of lost deserves a flat 0.0, 0. <laughs> Uh, right. I think that, that is a terrible take, Ben. Uh, <laughs> I think the worst episode of Lost is at least a 1.5. Uh, so I, I, I hope to, to at least articulate my point as to why I think Stranger in a Strange Land certainly is a, a vital episode of Lost. Uh, in the pantheon of the show as far as the making of the show. Um, but I think it also sets up one of the best magic tricks of of Lost. So I, I hope that I'm able to articulate that point when we get to that place. We are at the point where we are going to be starting about season, uh, starting talking about season three. Mike Bloom will be back on the podcast next week. We're talking about A Tale of Two Cities, the season three premiere. I think maybe 
my least favorite premiere in Lost. Yeah. Pretty sure. Yeah. Pretty sure just off the top of my head, I think that it, that's the one. Uh, but still an episode that I enjoy uh, quite a bit and uh, a season that I, ju- I just thoroughly love. So get your feedback in down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. You can also tweet at us your feedback at postshowrecaps. It's the Twitter account. Mike is at a Mike Bloom type. I'm at Round Howard. Who are you guys on the Twitter bots? Ben, I never reveal yours because I can't remember all the numbers. It's at Golden8284. That's too many numbers. It's four. I can't track all of that. It's just my birthday, actually. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, now you know when to send a present. Now I know when to send a present. It's coming up. And John, where are you on Twitter? No, no, no. You'll send it on the 2nd of August. It's the 8th of February. Oh, got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I would have. Yeah, I see. Have. Very good. Good save. Good save. Nice call. Um, So I can be found at Twitter at my name. So at J-O-N-K-R-A-U-S-E. And if I can do a little self-promotional plug here that has nothing to do with television, I recently started a YouTube channel called Fast Flag Facts with John. Um, And it's kind of a light education uh, show where I break down flags from around the world. And I use that as a way to talk about culture and history and a little bit of art and design. So um, if you're a person who likes flags or any of those things, uh, check it out. I don't, I don't have enough subscribers yet to have like a special YouTube URL or URL, but if you search for fast flag facts with John J O N, um, you can find me there too. All right. Awesome. So find John there. We'll be back on the podcast next week with our recap of season three, uh, the premiere, and we will take you out now randomly with uh battle with Gilgamesh clash on the big bridge from final fantasy five. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye. Pop that slap. Just imagine Jack punching the man in black to this. To this music. We should re edit the uh, series finale. Yeah. <laughs>